Humphrey stood in passive horror as the figure advanced upon him. Genetically stocky, bordering on the obese, with significant facial hair and monobrow. And she wasn't alone. Listen, you. Oh, I might have known you just sit there smirking at me. I suppose you're happy now, aren't you? Well, well, don't just sit there shaking your head at me. Listen, I don't like you and I don't respect you, right? Do you get that? Well, don't just sit there nodding at me. I always knew you'd divorce me. I always knew you would because you're a pig. You've got no compassion, no morals. You're nothing but a spiteful and vindictive swine, Humphrey. And another thing, you might well have divorced me, but I'm glad you did. And do you want to know why? Because it was my idea, that's why. Do you understand that? Yes, that's right. So you can't hold that over me. I'm happier now than I have been in years and I'm already looking for another man. Wait a minute, what am I saying? I'm looking for a man because you certainly don't qualify. You never did. Sandra agrees with me too and God knows she knows all about men. Well, don't look at me like that, Sandra. Oh, thank goodness. She'd taken a breath at last. This was typical, Anthea. Getting an attack in before anyone else could. It had been the same throughout their marriage. Humphrey shuddered. Yes, certainly it had, particularly with regard to those extremely hard to evade bedroom activities. He sent a cheery, good morning, in Sandra's direction, being unsure as to when, or indeed if, he would ever be able to get another word in. What Sandra was even doing there was a mystery. The two women didn't get on, even at the best of times. Not that Anthea had ever had too many of those, of course, certainly not since she found herself lumbered with him. She must have told him that hundreds of times over the years in no uncertain terms. Maybe Sandra was there to remind her sister to stop talking every once in a while and to actually breathe occasionally. Humphrey suddenly realised that his ex-wife wasn't talking. She wasn't even muttering under her breath about how useless he was. Was she even breathing? Had Sandra failed at even that basic task? He thought for a moment. He would need a mirror. That would soon bring her around anyway, for better or worse. As luck would have it, he just happened to have one on him. It was part of his new man penknife, which included no actual knife, but which did manage to incorporate a mirror, a raspberry lip balm and a pair of eyebrow tweezers. He moved very carefully towards her, but then hesitated, reluctant to take that final step, the one that would take him close enough to see the crow's feet and the laughter lines. Hang about. Laughter lines? Oh no, she was off again. What was it going to be this time, then? She was happy without him. Yes, he got that bit. She didn't look particularly happy, though, even for her. She was telling him that she was in spades with no holds barred, but she certainly didn't look it. She didn't often smile under any circumstances, though, to be fair to her. Not even one of those fake smiles where the mouth moves, but the eyes wish you every possible evil under the sun. God, she was gorgeous when she was angry. There was something about that bulging eye and jabbing finger combo that really did things to him. Did you want to see me, Anthea? Humphrey smiled at her endearingly. Or so he hoped, anyway. It was an expression he'd practised many a time. Charming, yet vulnerable. That was the aim. Here, speaking of aim, what was she doing with that vase? With some relief, he watched her place it back down on his desk. Did I want to see you what? Dead? Now you're well and truly talking. How about naked? That sounded cheerful enough, although he thought it prudent to actively assess his escape routes at that point, just in case she decided to take him up on that sadly not very generous offer. He needn't have worried. 
That would hardly be worth your while, Humphrey. Ouch. Now, that really was disappointing. She'd resorted to an attack on the physical. Her insults were usually so much better than that. There was no denying it. He felt cheated. I know you never loved me, Humphrey. Well, at least she'd feel a bit better for having got that off her chest. Wallowing in self-pity was her version of some sort of luxury spa day, and her ex-husband was having none of it. You never loved me either, then. Anthea gasped. Sandra looked ashen. Either? Oh, Jesus. She'd insulted him first. He was only trying to agree with her. She'd only gone and changed the bloody rules on him again. Pitifully, he began pleading his case. They should obviously never, ever have been an either. He hadn't been thinking straight, and it just sort of sneaked out. There should not have been an either. There should have been a no, delivered with great emphasis and indignation, and then nothing more. Or, if he hadn't felt quite so tired, he might have embellished it ever so slightly with a, Of course I did! Or, if he hadn't been quite so cowardly, he might even have made it a nice round suicidal, No, I'm sorry, but you're wrong. Unlikely, though, that one, under the circumstances. Hardened Spartan warriors might have had second thoughts about telling Anthea she was wrong. Still, she would have to be impressed by one thing. The revelation that he was such an expert ballistics marksman that he'd somehow managed to shoot himself in the foot, even while that foot was firmly jammed into his mouth. And she'd always told him he couldn't multitask, too. Let me get this perfectly straight, Humphrey. You are, in effect, saying that I was so unattractive, so hideous, so vile, and so utterly repulsive that even you, even you, did not love me. She clenched her fist in that very particular way she seemed to have. Humphrey was too offended to pay all that much attention. Ray Mears would have been appalled at him. Hang on a minute, what do you mean, even me? I resent that, I'll have you know. Did he look offended? He really, really wanted to look offended. Did she look offended? No, no, she just looked dangerous. Really? You made love to me with all the enthusiasm of a cow on its way to the abattoir. Humphrey stared at her. There she was again, confusing love with making love. Why did his rather too successful attempts to match Usain Bolt's personal best, albeit in a far more squelchy event, automatically have to mean that he'd never loved her? Would a clapped-out cow on its way to a well-deserved eternal peace have been any worse off than him anyhow? Clapped out in his own way, and yet destined not for peace, but for ongoing intimidating appointments with regimented horizontal exercise. What a very clever move on her part. There was no arguing against a statement like that. There was no defence to an accusation like that. His own father couldn't have got him off a charge like that one. Strangely, Humphrey felt a sense of intense pride at that last little revelation. He could just imagine his father confidently oozing onto the scene, taking a brief look at the opposition, then doing a wide-eyed double-take of Anthea and running for his life. Why the hell was she staring at him like that? Ah, yes, she'd asked him a question, hadn't she? Albeit a fully loaded one, heavily disguised as a derogatory statement. Well, since there was no point in arguing with her, he decided to try and call a halt to the entire episode. Oh, blow it out your ear, Anthea. Brave words, those. 
which was why he deftly moved to hide behind his former sister-in-law. Anthea's mouth fell open at his sheer audacity, not to mention his incredibly poor knowledge of anatomy. What sort of books on that subject could he possibly have been reading? Crap ones, by the sound of it, which might explain an awful lot of what had, and what usually had not, gone on during their marriage. I suppose you're happy now, though, aren't you? Now you divorce me. God, she was good. That entire statement had been expertly designed to make him say something that could immediately be taken out of context. He most certainly was happier now that he divorced her. There was no possible way he could deny that. Although Anthea herself had come up with the idea, on an almost daily basis, actually, throughout most of their 12-year wedlock. That was an interesting word, too. Wedlock. It sounded like a judicial sentence of some kind. You will be taken from this confetti-strewn place to a roller coaster of intense human emotions where you will serve 12 emotionally draining years of wedlock. Yes, after which time you'd be left as miserable and angry as Humphrey's ex-wife obviously was. In comparison to her, he was happy. At least she was finally talking to him again. As for him, these days he lived in a three-room hovel-come shoebox, shared a kitchen with the cast of A Bug's Life, and his dress collection was being slowly decimated by rising damp. There wasn't much of anything there to smile about. Aha! Of course, the perfect reply. Oh, this was going to be good. I'm as happy as you are, Anthea. Brilliant. Sheer genius. She wasn't happy, and for her to have to admit that to him would have meant her having to admit that their divorce had been utterly pointless. Their marriage hadn't been working, that was true, but divorce should never have been on the... Yeah. Brilliant. Sheer genius. She wasn't happy, and for her to have to admit that to him would have meant her having to admit that their divorce had been utterly pointless. Their marriage hadn't been working, that was true, but divorce should never have been the answer. And she could never give voice to that sort of statement without revealing some kind of deeper feelings something that, as a general rule of thumb, she simply didn't do. That was it then. Game, set and match to him, and you both please. He could almost hear the cogs grinding round in her head, trying desperately to find a hidden meaning in his words that could be somehow used against him. She was like that computer in war games, caught in a loop of her own ridiculous self-destruction. Was that it then? Was she leaving? With one final jab of her finger, ably assisted by a terrifyingly malevolent look with her ex-husband's name very much upon it, she departed. Sandra lingered momentarily, perhaps trying to weigh up her limited options, before a sisterly look of almost sub-zero temperature pulled her effortlessly through the door like Jane Torville. Humphrey allowed himself a rather self-satisfied little smile, the sort he wouldn't have dared to even think about giving an airing to in his ex-wife's presence. So, after three weeks of moving on with her life and being far better off without him, she'd finally cracked then, eh? That was a relief at any rate. He had handled most of the things that life seemed to delight in chucking at him, but Anthea's silent treatment was in a class of its own. Thank goodness he had at least one less thing to worry about now. It was, well and truly, one of those days, and Humphrey was slap bang in the middle of it. It wasn't quite in the same ballpark as the sort of days that Anthea regularly suffered from. Nobody was likely to end up being threatened with violence, simply because they dared to look at him the wrong way or anything like that. No, it was 
simply that the standard of potential client that had already audaciously auditioned for him that day had been, to cut a long story mercifully short, abysmal. He sincerely hoped that his own career might have hit its own rock bottom that day. A solid, concrete rock bottom too. Not one of those false ones, opening up to reveal even greater depths of human, fame-hungry desperation. Monty Price had been the first upon the scene that morning. He'd brought with him no discernible talent, but he had thought to come equipped with his own placard, upon which he'd at least managed to score the legend, Ask for the Price, albeit, rather disturbingly, in scarlet red crayon. The merest of inquisitions had established that this amazing ability to know his own name was in fact the bedrock of the man's entire audition. As far as it went, there was probably an act there, as the central component of a coconut shy, perhaps, or maybe as some sort of still-life display whose sole purpose was to direct shoppers to the bargain bin at the nearest supermarket. But show business? He had a great face for radio, that was the kindest thing that could be said for him. Although in which case there seemed very little point in him having the placard. Unless, of course, he was planning on using it as a form of self-defence against life's more discriminating and pugnacious entertainment critics. During the course of their brief interview, it had become glaringly obvious, certainly to one of them, that they were both simply wasting each other's time. Although indeed the potential for the act had plunged to new levels with every passing moment. It had transpired that Monty's mate, a man with no name but an obviously over-enthusiastic sense of humour, had been the one with the bright idea to have his friend pop by. This, after having apparently noticed a remarkable similarity between a conservatively estimated 22-stone Monty and that noted female beauty, Jennifer Aniston. The man was certainly on something, although sadly not in any way on to it. In fairness, had there been a Jennifer Aniston lookalike anywhere in the immediate vicinity of that office, Humphrey would have been more than capable of finding that person a great deal of varied and gainful employment. However, no matter how many degrees he'd inclined his head by and no matter how much he'd narrowed his eyes, he was buggered if he could see any similarity between that bloke and her whatsoever. Still, he'd been in the mood to be generous. They were presumably both human, that was a good start, and should the Hollywood star ever fancy growing a full beard and moustache, gaining about £200 in flab and shaving every hair on her head? No, it was no use. She would still have looked nothing at all like that ruddy charlatan. Monty's mysterious mate had interested Humphrey a good deal more, though. He felt sure he'd be able to find him highly paid employment as a professional comedian. He and Monty might even be able to cobble together some sort of double act. Or a double bill, yes. That might be a better way of phrasing it. Monty could always open things, although God only knew how. He would almost certainly have to incorporate a 50-metre head start on his pursuers. Of course, the bigger question was why Humphrey himself hadn't very quickly and rather ruthlessly just told Monty to take a hike. After all, any sensible person would have done. They would have slammed their door in his face, any sensible person. Except that, well, that sort of thing was a bit too predictable for Humphrey. He believed in giving everyone a fair hearing, even if most of the time it was fair to say he couldn't quite believe what he was hearing. For Pete's sake, Jennifer Aniston, pull the other one. After a mug of strong tea and a few biscuits, it had been the turn of one Jeremiah Rudge. Humphrey had been reluctant to even write an approximate age on Mr Rudge's audition form, as the man seemed to predate time itself. Doubtless he had been a fine figure of a fellow in his time. However, 
It would probably have been necessary to make contact with King Ethelred on some kind of long-distance Ouija board to independently verify that fact. Humphrey had been shocked to realise that he'd already formed an opinion on the chap pretty much before he'd even opened his mouth, which was most unlike him. He liked to think he could look beyond appearances, most of the time anyway. His own appearance in the past had practically invited enthusiastic criticism from complete strangers, and he was sure he was better than that. Before the diet, that was. Before Anthea. Yet there was no denying that he'd been able to hear the theme tune to Catweasel playing in his head as loudly as if the band had been right there beside them in that office. Not that Jeremiah would have heard it, of course, even given that sort of close proximity. As for an act, was there any call whatsoever, in this day and age, for a Catweasel impersonator? Catweasel. They didn't make programmes like that anymore. Everything was so fast-paced these days, wasn't it? Whatever happened to a nice, gentle evening's entertainment? A return to basics. That's what was needed. Goodness, he sounded like he was advocating some kind of austerity measure. Anthea would have had an absolute field day with his hankering for a nice, gentle evening's entertainment, too. On the subject of fields, perhaps Jeremiah could diversify into other forms of retro while he was about it, like the Crow Man, for instance. Humphrey thought that whole scenario deserved a good deal more thought. He could take the role of Wurzel Gummidge himself, since Anthea had always insinuated that he used that character as some sort of style guru in any case. The cheeky cow. That was the sort of one-liner she had the ability to just come out with, almost completely out of nowhere. Acidic, crafted to wound, and tailored specifically to each individual victim. Especially him. Yet even when she was being a right bitch, she still had the ability to make him feel important to her. God, he missed her. But what about Catweasel? Humphrey had been seeing more and more retired people through his door of late. In fact, he'd recruited an entire replica cast of Dad's army just the previous week. They would undoubtedly come into their own at village fates, commemorative gigs of all descriptions, and as something of a doddery last line of defence in the event that the Germans ever decided to have another bash. The state pension obviously just wasn't enough to live on. Jeremiah must have seen it all, done it all, and paid three ducats for the doublet and hose to prove it. But he'd still been reduced to this. Auditioning for Humphrey. He had plenty of oomph about him, though, and he didn't look as if he was going to be intimidated by the presence of an audience. He probably wouldn't be able to see them, and he almost certainly wouldn't be able to hear them. On top of which, his act had not been all that bad. Mind you, on any other day, it might have seemed quite bad indeed. But Humphrey's internal good-bad calibration had found it almost impossible to suitably quantify Monty Price's performance, thereby virtually guaranteeing a positive score for young Catweasel. At least he had actually managed to make himself look like something vaguely useful. His audition had appeared to be some sort of ventriloquism, which was fine. There would always be a market for that. And he looked to be enjoying himself too, which was another positive. The only thing was, his lips were quite clearly moving, although oddly... They didn't appear to be in sync with anything that was being said by anyone, anywhere in the room. Of course, that was just the sort of quirky genius that Humphrey could appreciate, although even he had to admit there appeared to be dark forces at work, and no mistake. Proof of that could be found in the shape of Jeremiah's grinning associate, which was surely one of the most terrifying objets d'art ever to be presented for potential public scrutiny. It could have served quite comfortably as the doorman to the room 101s of most of the world's population, its eyes didn't just follow you around the room, 
They seemed to silently curse every move you made. Actually, the more Humphrey had forced himself to look at it, the more it had reminded him of Barney. Not the expression, of course. No, that was pure Anthea. But that oak and plywood combo. Except that Barney was an immense amount more wooden. And if push came to shove, that doll could probably just about carry a tune. Something out of Satan's private collection, no doubt, but still. And if all else failed, at least that horror could be chucked on a fire for warmth. What use was Barney ever going to prove to be? Barney. Why the hell was he thinking about him? Never mind him. The more immediate issue was the signing up of young Jeremiah, because one way or another, he could be a gold mine. 80s retro, that was the market. He was perhaps more 1880s retro, admittedly, but that wouldn't necessarily matter. None of he was packaged right. He could already see that dummy having a long show business career. Was he thinking about Barney again then? No, heavens to goodness, no. Oh, good grief, he was due in the office to see him later on, wasn't he? Unless Humphrey's luck was in that day and the world mercifully happened to end some time before then. No, it was Jeremiah's wooden friend he'd been thinking about. That thing had the sort of face that could comfortably warn an entire population off drink, drugs and smoking, all in one fell swoop and with no arguments. Yes, perhaps some sort of public information role beckoned for him then. Her Majesty's Revenue and Customs ought to be extremely interested in having that thing working in the crowd for them for a start. Coffers would be overflowing in no time at all with him rattling the tin. He was more intimidating than the craze he was. Humphrey checked his watch, half past one. Barney would be here soon. He had to hand it to the boy. He was nothing if not resilient. He seemed, in fact, to be made of mental rubber. No doubt that was something for which Humphrey ought to have been taking some of the credit, if not, more specifically, the blame. He protected his client far too much. A protection that extended far, far beyond simply providing a cupboard for Barney to hide in after every horribly misguided singing attempt. As an entertainer, Barney almost literally defied words. Proof, if it were needed, could be found in that very morning's local newspaper, where even that description of him had been taken to a whole new level. Quite touchingly, it had initially been proud to call itself an entertainment review. There was a rather lovely photograph of the reviewer too, no doubt taken long before his trip to witness Barney the previous evening. Panda a penny wouldn't be looking quite so chipper today. He'd be looking like someone broken on the rack today. The review itself had obviously been posthumously dictated following Barney's latest ignominious entertainment death. Words cannot even begin to describe what I witnessed here last night. And that was it. Short and unfortunately to the point. Barney had obviously attempted to sing. Again. Barney was a man for whom the phrase one-trip pony was simply insufficient as an adequate description. He was so devoid of talent that he could hardly do such a much maligned nag any kind of adequate justice. And on the subject of much maligned nags, Humphrey really was missing Anthea. It was going to mean yet another call to the glazier. Crikey, no wonder Humphrey always told him to only ever contemplate taking baths. 
and his mum was going to kill him too. He'd only sung one note in the shower as well, although obviously it had been an absolute belter. Maybe he had perfect pitch. That was quite rare, that was, perfect pitch. He might mention that to Humphrey later on. But then again, perhaps he might not. It would all depend on his mentor's mood, after Barney had told him about last night. Over breakfast, he'd finally felt able to confront head-on the memory of the previous evening's performance. He'd managed to arrive at the venue in good time. That would have had to impress Humphrey, at least. The Red Lion, yes. The place had only just opened, and it had been Barney's first ever engagement down there. Although, judging by precedent set elsewhere, that invariably meant that it would almost certainly also prove to be his last ever engagement down there. He never seemed to be invited back anywhere. Barney was far from being what might be described as a superstitious fellow, but the omens hadn't been particularly encouraging right from the off. There'd been, for instance, a thunderstorm of simply epic proportions which had apparently sprung up from nowhere, just as Barney was sorting out his bus fare. Brave to the last, he'd found a coat with a hood on it, and had casually disregarded the event as simply God moving one or two items of his furniture around. Little did Barney know it, but Humphrey had also formed an opinion on the weather at the exact same moment that he had, although from the relative safety of his own office. His own theological interpretation of the meteorology had been identical, up to the point where the Lord had begun to rearrange his knickknacks. However, Humphrey had been convinced that a being of such undisputed wisdom would have gone a stage further than that by bunging a few things into a few boxes and then skipping town in the back of a Pickford's van before things really did turn ugly. In short, before Barney could try to sing. The bad omens hadn't stopped there either. When a black cat tries to throw itself beneath the wheels of a delivery truck and it's rushed to position itself right in your path, that could just about be interpreted as being something vaguely promising at the good luck department. Ah, but when the avoiding action necessitated by the driver of that truck then causes the entire thing to overturn, resulting in the complete destruction of its cargo, 58 mirrors, well, it's enough to give even the most grounded of people the willies. Is breakfast over? Barney checked his watch. Half past one. Oh well, time to confront his critics head on. As he took his seat on the bus to Brentwood, Barney gazed around him despondently. Why was nobody looking at him? Did nobody realise he was famous? Okay, perhaps not famous. Not yet. That was Humphrey's fault though. After all, Barney was out there engaging with the public. Actually, he'd even engaged in a spot of hand-to-hand combat with one or two of them the previous evening, but then again, they had been extraordinarily rude about his singing. At least they were likely to remember him. Surely Humphrey ought to be building on a foundation like that. Barney wanted to be famous. That was, in fact, pretty much the sum total of all his ambitions. Well, there were others, but there was no point in pursuing any of those until he was famous. Why wasn't he famous? Everybody else was. Hey, that was a thought. Perhaps he could become famous for not actually being famous. Yeah, that really was a thought. Ah, no, what would be the point of that? To be instantly recognised and worshipped in the street. That was what he really wanted. And that was pretty much all he wanted. Not much, really, in the grand scheme of things. Surely that must be achievable. Especially since he wasn't remotely interested in the majority of the associated trappings. The flash car, for instance, that wouldn't be necessary. 
He couldn't drive anyway, and even if he could, there would be very little point in him having a flash car if nobody even knew it was him in it. No, he would be going everywhere by public transport, just like now. Except that in the future, he would have to travel everywhere with a big box of glossy headshots and a marker pen, just in case. Oh, and in the future, he wouldn't have to borrow the bus fare from his mum. They'd be taken care of, though, his parents when he was famous. He'd buy them a small palace somewhere, perhaps. Something modest. They could run his UK fan club from there. He doodled his name in the condensation on the window, just for practice. That really was a rubbish autograph. Every single letter was legible, and that would never do. It looked as though it had been written by a six-year-old. He'd have to work on a decent signature. Oh yeah, and what about a heartfelt message to his millions of fans? Personally speaking, he'd always liked the warm sentiments associated with a best wishes from. In fact, he'd treasured for years an autograph from George, the blue peated tortoise, which had earnestly conveyed that very sentiment. But then, how would that look? He carefully added the words to his name. Dear God. Right, enough was enough. There was no alternative. He was going to have to shelve the singing lessons for the time being and devote his every waking moment to getting himself a classier form of signature. His singing teacher would understand, if he could reach her. She'd become somewhat incommunicado since permanently moving to Australia and leaving no forwarding address. No doubt she'd realise that there wasn't a great deal that could be done with a voice like his. Yes, that'd be it. It was a shame, though, because he wouldn't be able to send her an autograph when he was famous. It was the very least she deserved because that name was going to be worth a lot of money. Not that cash was any sort of motivation to him. No, it would be worth money to his fans. That's what he meant. Barney didn't want anything in the way of tangible rewards. Well, peace or something instead, that would do. He'd be happy with that, along with maybe just enough money to give him a comfortable lifestyle. Perhaps just enough to buy himself a nice little yacht or something. Something smart where he would be able to entertain as many big-boobed gold diggers as could safely negotiate themselves of his gangplank. Yes, OK, he wanted fame with all the trimmings. So what? So what if they'd only be after him for his money? There was nobody even remotely interested in him at the moment, and he was as far removed from being rich as it was possible to be without having to resort to eating things out of bins. Other people's bins, too. Real poverty. They wouldn't just be after his money, though, these big-boobed gold diggers. Because he'd be a celebrity, and that would mean he would automatically take delivery of bucketfuls of power and charisma. Why? Well, he just would, that's all. He might have to put up with a paparazzo living in his shed, of course, and that might very quickly prove intensely irritating. But none of that would really matter in the end, because he would be famous. Humphrey slumped down behind his desk with a family-sized bar of galaxy and waited for Barney's sadly all-too-imminent arrival. If only the bloke would just stop singing for a while and actually start listening to him, they might be able to make a bit of progress. Humphrey was absolutely certain he had identified Barney's primary failing as a professional singer. The young man had an extremely disturbing tendency to open his mouth in any sort of public setting and attempt to make noises with it. Very, very unpleasant noises. Even his screams for immediate assistance in any sort of public setting could chill the blood of any potential rescuer. His own idea, a personal favourite, was to have Barney attempt something else for a while. Although, unfortunately, 
it looked as though it would still have to fall within the darkest depths of the entertainment world, and so unfortunately, it looked as though it would continue to be Humphrey's problem, for the time being anyway. Although he did feel an obligation to the boy, there was no denying that. Proof, if ever there was any, that Humphrey Lovewell was just too soft. He was thinking of Anthea there, why was that? Something about him being too soft. Oh Christ, mocking laughter too. Barney, he needed to focus on Barney. He was going to have to be harder, firmer, much more dominant. Humphrey broke off a large piece of chocolate. This was how it started the last time. Comfort eating. It had been for a completely different reason then, though. Or had it? Not Anthea, not then, but protection from countless painful aspects of his existence. It was a pathetic excuse, all right, but perhaps that was all he was as well. A pathetic excuse. Had he not heard it said enough times in his life from quite a number of independent sources? Disgusted by his own predictability, he shoved the chocolate in his mouth in one piece. It wasn't satisfying. He couldn't even taste it. So he broke off another, much larger chunk and tackled that. He'd put on weight the first time from the age of 15. Attention-seeking, that was the technical term for it. That's what he'd called it anyway. It also made him extremely difficult to embrace properly, except by blood relatives of Mr Tickle. That had been vitally important, since it had provided the perfect explanation, at least in Humphrey's mind, for the distinct lack of any kind of affection from the direction of his father. He had actually asked him for a hug once, although he couldn't quite remember why. He distinctly recalled being labelled a pathetic excuse for a boy for even making such a daft request, though. Michael wasn't someone he would ever have voluntarily wanted to spend any time in close proximity with anyway, which made the whole thing even more bizarre. In fact, he really couldn't even begin to imagine what he might have been thinking. He must have been on drugs or something. Well, yes, of course he had. Chocolate. It hadn't simply been a compulsive need to eat that left him weighing more than an average household's furniture, though. Genetically, he was supposed to be lean and athletic, just like his father. Except that Humphrey had been blessed with far better legs than him and was therefore far better placed to be able to do justice to a netball skirt. That had been attention-seeking too, of course. Oh, heavens, he was reminiscing. That was all right, though. A brief trip down memory lane could be rather exhilarating. Why had the coin always come down on the side of fight, though, and not flight? That would have been far more sensible, certainly with his father. His late adolescence would have been different. Potentially even crappier, but different. His life now would be different. Not that his life now could get much crappier, but maybe he was still Anthea. She never reminisced. Then again, she took a general, all-encompassing umbrage to most things almost immediately, so perhaps she didn't really see the need to. But there was so much more to her than that. That performance earlier on, for instance. She may not have reminisced, but she certainly remembered things, especially things he had done wrong, which, of course, was most things. Blimey, the event horizon preventing any nice memories from escaping from her mind must have been close to defying the laws of physics. It must have been like the end credits of Get Smart up there, with all those doors slamming shut. If, indeed, she had ever unlocked them to anyone or anything in the first place. Humphrey had obviously broken down one or two of them, and had made his lasting presence felt. 
He'd obviously got to her, although apparently not in any kind of a good way. He'd well and truly got the message that he'd managed to completely ruin her life, although she hadn't been too specific on precisely how he was supposed to have done that. But all wasn't lost, not by a long way, because even by giving him all of that somewhat destructive credit, she was acknowledging how important he'd been to her, which meant he had her attention. He was absolutely positive that she hadn't thought that one through. His own thoughts were interrupted by a face at the window of his office. For one awful moment he thought Barney was early for their appointment, but he relaxed considerably the second he realised it wasn't him. What on earth did that say about their working relationship then? Before he could further consider that question, the door opened. Mr Lovewell? Hell's toenails, what was he supposed to say to that? He'd been caught out like this before. Admittedly, he'd been caught rather more off-guard the last time. He'd answered the question truthfully through a locked door, which, within seconds, was being forced to its hinges by a pair of rather ferocious-looking bolt cutters. He then felt obliged to ask his own, somewhat clichéd question of the intruder. What the hell do you think you're doing, then, you bastard? Which had been met by a medley of four-letter expletives. It was a stupid question to ask, given the blatantly obvious circumstances, and he'd cursed himself for coming up with it, using some of the new abusive language he'd just learned. With hindsight, he should have asked the nice gentleman for his autograph, perhaps, or maybe to even pose for a photograph with him. Something completely unexpected. Then again, he might not still be alive to have these sorts of regrets if he'd done that. These debt collector types certainly took no prisoners. He managed to talk his way out of that one eventually. He could charm everybody, could Humphrey. Apart from his ex-wife, that is. Oh, and his father. The two most important people in his life. Allegedly. Yes, that was a bit of a waste of a gift then, really. Would it even work on this woman he was facing at the moment? She might even be a debt collector. She did look a bit old to be in that sort of game. Although with the state of the country these days, that might not have made any difference except that he didn't actually owe anybody any money this time, did he? Or did he? Anthea hadn't left many major debts for him to have to worry about, having managed to get the house and all of its associated utilities from him during the divorce, together with a hefty chunk of his monthly pay packet for years to come. That was kind of her, really, because it left him with fewer long-term financial concerns in his own life. He didn't have to worry about putting any of his spare money anywhere it might have incurred debts either because, thanks to Anthea and her brilliant legal advisor, he didn't have any spare money these days. She'd been thinking of him. That was the sort of person she was. Kind, considerate, or something like that anyway. That lawyer, though, he'd been purely out for himself. Well, if it wasn't something in his personal life, it had to be something to do with work. He quickly ran through the list of performers he had sent out into a largely unsuspecting world the previous evening. While none of them would have been in danger of ever actually setting the world on fire, they should all have just about been able to entertain people reasonably safely. If said people were not too fussy. And if said people had very low entertainment expectations. And if said people were drunk and preferably unconscious as well, it really couldn't hurt either. Actually, he might have been doing one or two of his clients a disservice with such a broadly dismissive description. One or two of them may well indeed have had the talent for a spot of global pyromania, albeit accidentally. Humphrey would have to clamp down on any act involving naked flames of any kind, just to be on the safe side. 
Barney bloody Adams. It must have been him then. That bloke already had more insurance policies on him than a seaside pier. This poor cow must be yet another one of his disgruntled punters. She'd be after damages then. Well, she certainly wasn't getting the rest of his chocolate. And he had nothing else of any value to offer her. Apart from his body. Yes, so he had absolutely nothing else of any value to offer her. Mind you, she didn't seem to have any sort of psychopathic look to her. In actual fact, this woman looked half asleep. Christ, she was. How long had he been pondering her question? What the hell day was it? She had asked him a question, hadn't she? Right then. No. He was decisive. She was startled. No what? Humphrey hesitated. No being the answer to your question. Whatever it was. She obviously couldn't remember what she'd asked him either. They blinked at each other. I'm sorry, I didn't like to bother you just then. You seem to be concentrating quite hard on something. Actually, I thought you might have been in the middle of a particularly nasty number two experience. Had he passed wind there? No. His charming face clearly needed a significant amount of work. I do beg your pardon, are you here to audition for me? Because, you see, it might be better if you were to make an appointment. No, 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 nothing like that. I am here on official business. Humphrey gulped. She must have her bolt cutters concealed in that pink gingham shopping bag. In that case, he feared for his deadbolt. He really did. Barney Adams. He eyed her suspiciously. She still wasn't getting his chocolate, whatever Barney's singing might have done to her. What about him? I'm here because of him. Hell's bells. I thought as much. Is this anything to do with his singing, by any chance? The woman smiled warmly. His singing, his presence, his body, everything. Hell's bells with knobs on. That boy had obviously really done it this time. Just wait until he got his hands on him. May I ask, without admitting responsibility for him in any way whatsoever, what exactly you mean by that? Truth be told, he was almost afraid to know the answer. In historical terms, this was like asking Anthea if she wanted a romantic encounter instead of watching EastEnders. He should have been safe, and yet he never was. She'd always been able to do both, usually only missing the title thing with that god-awful programme in the process. I represent his fan club, Mr Lovewell. That is to say, his Appreciation Society. Humphrey glanced outside. It wasn't sunny enough out there to induce such a dangerous case of sunstroke, surely. Are you feeling all right? Can I get you a glass of water, perhaps? The woman seemed overwhelmed by his humble offering. Perhaps she might have been impressed by his body after all. Would he have touched the glass, Mr Lovewell? I don't think so, no. Barney and glass, they don't really get on. The woman nodded in agreement. That was interesting, as it implied she knew exactly who she was dealing with, warts and all. If Barney even had an all, he certainly never seemed to give it. What I want to know is, Mr Lovewell. Humphrey waited. She was obviously going to ask him for the name and number of a good psychiatrist, perhaps, or whether he knew of somewhere she could get counselling. Ask Sandra. And with that, 
She and her gingham exited from the premises as fast as her elderly legs could carry her. Sandra? Anthea's Sandra? Humphrey glanced out of the window again and spotted what he had to assume was the reason for her hasty exit. There, using all his powers of concentration to push the button for the pedestrian crossing, was the old Melody Mangler himself, Barney Adams. Humphrey dearly wished he'd seen him at the same moment his fan had done. He'd have joined her very swiftly in her flight, that was for sure. Sadly, it was too late now. He returned to his chocolate and waited for his day to get even worse. After a good three or four minutes of sitting there, it occurred to him that one way or another, Barney really ought to have been there by now. Admittedly, the crossing often proved tricky for the boy, but there was almost always someone around who could help him. Reluctantly, and probably with the same lack of enthusiasm that his ex-wife had already commented upon that very afternoon, he dragged himself to his feet and gingerly approached the window. There was no sign of Barney anywhere. Buoyed on a wave of hope, always one of his greatest weaknesses, he opened the door and checked in both directions. Nothing. Could Barney really have just vanished into thin air? Could Humphrey really, really be that lucky? Past experiences had clamoured for his attention, all desperate for the opportunity to remind him that he was not a lucky sort of chap at all, despite the mask of optimism he stoically wore as part of his day-to-day attire. He wasn't lucky, all right. Not many people were, as far as he could ascertain. The world was unpleasant and life itself was often not much better. Yet there was always enough hope to make going on with it seem just about worthwhile. Humphrey himself would always appear to have just enough going for him to make him want to plough on and try to do better. The fates were cunning like that. Of course they were. They were women. Hi, Humphrey. Just as he thought. He wasn't a lucky sort of chap at all. Hello, Barney. The name of Humphrey's agency, somehow, was a masterpiece of self-deprecation. Of course, it had been christened back in the days before he'd met and married Anthea, when he still had total responsibility for his own deprecation. She'd very quickly taken over the running of that particular department from him, along with a remarkably long list of others. Somehow, it was definitely catchy. It gave no real indication to the general public as to what it was really about either. You really had to want to find out more. At the beginning, he hadn't even had a telephone number, and over the years, although he'd been steadily forced to accept certain technological advances through pure necessity, he had proudly continued to remain something of an enigmatic presence on the high street. He'd always believed in the value of face-to-face negotiations and business dealings. At least, he had until his marriage, anyway. That experience had managed to skew quite a few of his beliefs. In fact, some of them had been damaged quite beyond any sort of cost-effective repair. He'd established one thing right from the start. If folk wanted to find out what he was doing inside the offices of somehow, then they would jolly well have to come inside and ask him. They wouldn't just be looking him up in a phone book and calling him from the comfort of their armchairs. No way. In later years, they wouldn't just be firing off a lazy and impersonal email either. No, if they wanted him, they had to find him. He wanted people who had made the effort to do that. The ones who had already thought things through. The ones who may well have followed a trail of dead ends that would have left all time wasters by the wayside. He wanted people out of their comfort zones to prove to him they meant business. 
Anyone who did that would get his undivided attention. All he had to do in the meantime was sit in his office eating crisps, waiting for them. It hadn't even been a show business agency, not in the beginning. Humphrey had originally been operating more as a renegade life coach. The fact that he was sadly lacking in all suitable qualifications had preyed on his conscience considerably, however, and he therefore decided it was best to be upfront about all that with his clients right from the off. Honesty seemed to be in short supply in most areas of existence, and he was going to try to redress the balance. The very notion of that had turned his father's face the same colour as a glass of Ribena, but then he said to spur Humphrey on. Hadn't that same spluttering figure told him, on umpteen previous occasions, those that can do, while people like you will just have to manage somehow? He should have been proud of him. It could have always have been a first time. His father had never made the effort to try to understand him, that was the problem. One of them, at least. That name was a marketing masterstroke. Of course, under ordinary circumstances, the old git might have had a point. Voluntarily admitting to potential clients that you possess no actual talent of your own might not immediately seem to be a very sensible way of securing a regular income. And yet, something truly bizarre had begun to happen. His honesty itself had become his talent. People instinctively felt they could trust him, and they could rely on him. Besides which, a man of the sort of gargantuan size that he'd been in those days would have been easy enough to hunt down and destroy if he and his coaching advice had really pissed anyone off. Then there were the prices. Humphrey still had in his possession the old fag packet upon which he'd worked out most of them. He'd treasured it even more these days, given that it was one of the few things he'd been permitted to keep by his ex-wife's down lawyer. The prices had needed adjusting as his popularity had increased, although, interestingly enough, he'd proceeded to make his services less expensive. Not what might have been expected, perhaps, which was precisely why it had appealed to him. He'd come full circle on that one. In the beginning, he'd charged very little, but had then been forced to look on in horror as his clients completely ignored most of his advice. A quick soul-search one morning in the company of three dozen jam donuts had led Humphrey to the obvious answer. They hadn't valued his wisdom, simply because it hadn't cost them much. So, he'd taken his fag packet and had then plucked from the air some of the most eye-watering prices ever seen outside of a budget airline's list of compulsory extras. Within a week he was turning down business, and so within a week he was able to reduce his prices back down to something slightly less reminiscent of blatant daylight robbery. His obvious popularity now, rather bizarrely, ensured his clients' trust, so an attack on their rainy day fund to focus their minds was thankfully no longer necessary. Money had never been his motivation. He'd leave his father and the others like him to worship distastefully at that altar. Meanwhile, Humphrey would have far more important things to do, like actually taking care of his clients, for instance. His success had boiled down to just one thing, belief. His charges had to believe in him, of course, but all he had to do was let them. All he had to do, in fact, was nothing. Nothing whatsoever. People would come through his door nursing long-held desires, things they passionately wanted to do or to change, things that they didn't think they had the courage to even try to achieve on their own. And Humphrey simply had to sit there and do nothing. Well, nothing except listen to them. That was a vastly underrated skill, though. 
actually taking the time to listen to people. Certainly, nobody had ever taken the time to listen to him. He didn't mean nodding vacuously at his clients while they were talking either, as an unseen internal jukebox cranked out a nice bit of loud muzak to prevent him from falling asleep through sheer boredom in mid-nod. He meant giving them his complete, undivided attention. The whole show business aspect of his career had blossomed from there. Well, perhaps not blossomed exactly. That might imply there'd been beautiful little buds of fresh talent sprouting up in every direction. It hadn't quite been like that. The showbiz hopefuls Humphrey had begun to cultivate were inclined by their very nature to require unbelievable levels of nurturing and attention, as well as almost infinite amounts of time and patience. That was something he could completely understand, even if, after all that, it was usually discovered that the resulting bloom did not really live up to any realistic horticultural expectation. However, rather than being humanely left to rot on some sort of slowly decomposing entertainment compost heap somewhere, most of his discoveries were subsequently able to make quite a reasonable living for themselves, one way or another. The ones with a burning desire to play the spoons in the orchestra at the Royal Variety performance or with a desperate need to spend their remaining days as members of the virtually anonymous ensemble of a London musical, those were relatively easy to please. They were the hybrids, really, the ones who still had real and tangible dreams. Humphrey delighted in working with those people. Even if their goals proved just that bit beyond them, it almost always proved to be a mutually enjoyable experience. The journey towards the realisation, the new paths it could lead to, and what it said about them, that was the point. That was the key. But there were others, whose numbers he'd seen steadily grow throughout the years. They were completely different to the sorts of clients he'd originally been looking to help. They had neither the desire nor the inclination to even set themselves any realistic goals, and were usually after one of two things. Fame or money. Or, of course, both. The pursuit of fame seemed to be the more popular, while, oddly, the idea of being rich without being famous appealed to relatively few people. In fact, there seemed a really rather incredible number who would have happily lived out their lives in the spotlight, even if it meant being forced to borrow the price of a cup of tea from the nearest charitable church mouse. Most of them would have been only too delighted to endure ongoing financial penury it meant being recognised in the street by members of the public. And it didn't even seem to make a blind bit of difference to any of them what they were actually recognised for. Serial shagger? Result. Celebrity sponger? Nice one. One of Humphrey's rabble had in fact once reached the definitive all-time low of selling his own grandmother purely for the publicity. Fair enough, it had actually been Humphrey's idea, but he'd obviously never intended for it to ever be taken seriously. It had been said in exasperation as a throwaway remark. You would sell your own grandmother for the publicity. Just a throwaway, stupid comment, that was all. He had certainly not expected to find the woman's particulars in that week's edition of Exchange and Mark. Strangely enough, she'd then managed to attract more publicity out of the whole episode than her seriously put out grandson, on account of the sudden onslaught of interviews and morning television appearances that had arrived hot on the heels of her best or near offer price. Humphrey could easily understand and indeed empathise with anybody who felt that they needed a bit of attention. 
He even recognised that complete inability to be able to differentiate between good or bad attention. Hence his own ill-advised teenage adventures with his father. But that was different. Most of these people were literally a danger to themselves. Barney Adams. Yes, a prime example there, if ever there was one. Well, you wanted to be famous, Barney. Tell me, do wanted posters count? Barney did not quite understand all aspects of that question. Or was it two questions? If it was two questions, they surely couldn't be in any way associated. Because if they were, then Humphrey clearly didn't know him very well. Barney's mental processing powers were fragile at best. But there was no shame in not being an intellectual. How many of them were famous? No, it was no good. He'd never be able to get the hang of this thinking lark. The echo was giving him a splitting headache for a start. Oh, great. It looked like Humphrey was going to answer his own question. Or was it two questions? Well, however many it was, that would probably be the best plan anyway. Barney might have to ask him for an aspirin or two once he'd answered his own question. Or was it two questions? It is fame you want, is that right? Not money? Oh, absolutely. In any case, you don't need to be rich once you're famous, because it's implied. Humphrey eyed him suspiciously. Implied by who, exactly? Barney was aghast. Humphrey was supposed to be a man of the world. Well, women, of course. Women. Humphrey threw his pen down in exasperation. So, women. The whole sorry saga had taken a grave new turn. When you say women, Barney, are you perchance thinking of fame-hungry gold diggers, just by any chance? With big boobs? Yeah, that's it. This time, Humphrey threw up his hands in exasperation. Barney's own hands were clearly holding two imaginary approximations of these apparently desirous attributes. Either that, or he just grabbed hold of two invisible prize-winning watermelons. The poor sod was becoming a parody in front of his very eyes, a stereotype. It was but a short, paparazzi-infested journey from honest and hard-working artist to shameless media whore. And even if he did become famous, once any of the sort of girls he was dreaming of got their hooks into him, they'd have all the sordid details in crap or rubbish or some similar trash magazine before anyone could say they'd slept with and then cheated on Jack Robinson. Well, he wasn't going to be dragging Humphrey down that slippery slope with him. Boobs the size and texture of the stone spheres of Costa Rica might well appeal to those who couldn't think for themselves, but there were other options, far more realistic ones. Like the sort of boobs that resembled a couple of old sandbags, the sort that came halfway down to their owner's knees every time she took a bra off. Yes, as far as Humphrey was concerned, there was a great deal to be said for the likes of them. And God, how he missed out there. Don't you want to hear what happened last night? I already know, Sonny Jim, your singing defied description. Is that good? This was the sort of pivotal moment where Humphrey really earned his money. He sat on his hands, though, just in case they betrayed his measured calm and made an independent lunge towards Barney's throat. Well, let's look on the bright side. At least you're getting noticed. Barney beamed back at him. Such a wide-eyed, trusting expression. Just like a baby seal. A baby seal who assumes he's about to be fawned over, but who is in much greater danger of being brutally clubbed to death. Humphrey scrutinised him. 
He'd seen that expression in his own mirror enough times to be able to identify with it on every single level. That had been him all those years ago, desperately trying to get noticed, usually by doing the wrong things. With Barney, it was the singing, or the attempt at singing at any rate. With him, it had been the embracing of his more artistic side. He'd stood there, like Barney now, and silently begged for his father's attention. And he'd got it too. He shifted very slightly in his chair as he remembered the usual way that attention had manifested itself. Nevertheless, if someone is taking his belt to you, he cannot, by definition, be dragging his trolley around the golf course or propping up the clubhouse bar. Although that wasn't to say that he hadn't been there in spirit. That was a depressing thought. Could it really have been that even those precious times together hadn't been all they'd seemed? Then again, it would have been no worse than what Humphrey himself was doing to Barney at that very moment. What about that promise made all those years ago to always listen intently to his clients? As long as this particular one did not try to burst into song, of course. Did you know you've got a fan club? Barney was obviously pondering that question. He was frowning so hard it looked as though his face was collapsing on itself, which could still have been a major improvement. No? Me? I know, I know. It's astonishing, isn't it? Wait, though, that woman had called herself an appreciator, hadn't she? Not a fan. Was there a difference between the two definitions? It seemed to be arguing semantics, and for no particularly good reason. Whoever these people were, they were clearly off the charts in terms of good sense, taste and sanity. The whole thing was obviously beyond Barney's limited comprehension, along with most things, in all honesty. Now, how was Humphrey going to break it to him that the woman he'd met earlier on did not exactly have the boobs of his dreams? Mind you, Sandra might easily fall rather top-heavily into that category. Uh, not that her former brother-in-law had ever noticed or anything like that. Although it had been extraordinarily difficult not to sometimes. And that woman was a fan of Barney's. Life wasn't fair, it really wasn't. There were so many questions that had been left unanswered when that lady in her gingham had gone and there was really only one way for Humphrey to try and find out some of the answers. He would have to go and find Sandra. And how would he find Sandra? He'd just have to go and ask Anthea. Yes! Finally, an excuse to go and see her, without having to look like he wanted to see her. Fantastic! Ah, but he couldn't really mention the bit about wanting to find Sandra, because it would be just awful if Anthea became jealous. And it would be utterly catastrophic if she didn't. Perhaps he'd be better off staying right where he was and finishing his chocolate. Do you mean that people actually like me? God, just look at him. Honestly, if he'd put on a bit of makeup and had his eyebrows plucked, it really would have been like looking in a mirror from the 1980s. Damn right they do. I will say this, though. I don't know enough of the details yet to be able to ascertain precisely why they do. Frankly, I wouldn't even like to hazard a guess in that direction until I've looked at least one of them right in the eyes and seen for myself how far her pupils are dilated. But people actually like me. Humphrey swallowed hard. Yes, sir. Of course they do. I couldn't have done it without you. You believe in me, don't you, Humphrey? Hang on. Was that a statement, a question or a threat of some description? Humphrey was taking no chances. My God, Barney, look at that! Bless him. 
Barney could only ever really successfully focus on one item of importance at any one time. He did well to be able to breathe and move around simultaneously on a day-to-day basis. Now here he was engaged in an intensive search of the immediate area for the imaginary diversionary tactic that Humphrey deployed. Never mind, his short-term memory wasn't brilliant. Hopefully by the time the search was called off he would have forgotten all about that absurd little line of inquiry. There was only one way to find out. Sorry Barney, you were saying? Barney looked puzzled, then confused, and then hopelessly lost. Bingo! Oh well, not to worry. It can't have been all that important then, can it? What can't, Humphrey? Dear God Almighty, surely he'd never been this obtuse, had he? Even as he thought that, he became acutely aware of a different group of memories which were beginning to organise themselves into an orderly queue ready for his attentions. He tried to remain one step ahead of them. All right then, Barney, onward and upward. I have got you a gig next Tuesday. Before you ask, yes, we can call it a singing engagement if we really have to, but I do advise you to work on a backup act if that is going to be the case. Something like the Duke boys used to do, you know, diving into your own general lee without having to stop to open the doors first and then doing 0 to 60 in four seconds. It's at that wine bar on the way up to the station. Barney looked concerned. Or maybe he simply had indigestion. It was really very difficult to say. I thought I was banned from there. Crikey, he was right. Humphrey should have remembered that. Of course, it was terribly difficult keeping track of all of Barney's various asbos and restraining orders. Each one seemed to have its own unique little clauses and legal jargon. The one taken out by the vicar of one of the local churches was his own personal favourite. Humphrey dispatched his tuneless troublemaker down there to sing at a harvest festival, of all things. It sounded ridiculous in hindsight, of course it did, but then Barney's singing tended to sound ridiculous in pretty much every single circumstance. That was still no reason for the vicar to have double-crossed them like that, though. You really couldn't trust anyone these days, it was true. Once Barney had frightened all the mice away from the comestibles, the clergyman had only gone and called the police on him, and young Barney had eventually found himself banned from the church and the grounds to a depth of six feet, on the basis that singing like his could awaken the dead, which was a very real threat Humphrey had been reluctantly forced to concede. But what about that wine bar? Ah, yes, that's right. Barney wasn't allowed to go within 100 metres of there. Was that right? Or was that the distance he was required to keep away from that double-glazing showroom? Would 100 metres from anything be able to provide an adequate buffer zone from the horrors that could be unleashed quite effortlessly by that charismatically clueless cord crusher. He'd have to check the paperwork again. He wouldn't be the least bit surprised to discover it was a hundred mile exclusion zone they were actually dealing with. At least. Chapter 3 Sandra lived in an immaculate little cottage in one of the swankiest streets in the area. She was happily married, although her husband worked away for the majority of the time, the two statements being perhaps not entirely unconnected. She'd found him that job herself, as a matter of fact. He had never looked smarter in his life than he had on the morning of that interview. She'd personally made sure of that. She'd even promised him a bit of extra special love action if and when he signed that permanent contract. What did she care? It had meant a little bit of extra effort in the short term, but the potential rewards were almost limitless. 
a tidy house, the toilet seat reassuringly horizontal, the freedom to be able to express herself whenever she liked by breaking wind, biting her toenails or scratching her bum. All of this with the added romance of a long-distance relationship as well. A relationship sustained for the most part by passionate telephone conversations, an account with interflora and two vivid and sex-starved imaginations. Anthea had always been jealous of her. Of course she had. A lifetime of her sister being prettier than she was, more popular than she was and, most importantly, younger than she was, had definitely taken its toll on the poor old bag. The discovery that Humphrey was nothing but an annoyingly useless waste of space when compared to a real man like Sandra's had been a slow, gradual process. It was a question of romance, really. While Sandra's husband was sending her two dozen roses, Humphrey was unblocking his wife's U-bend. While Sandra's husband was calling her from Hong Kong with a list of his passions and desires, Humphrey had been calling Anthea from Sainsbury's with a list of that day's special offers. While Sandra was allowed to live with the intrigue and mystery of the unknown, Anthea had been anchored very much in the known and the predictable with Humphrey. The money that miraculously appeared in Sandra's joint bank account each month was more than sufficient to keep her from either the dole queue or the Russia hour commute. Instead, she was able to indulge herself, to relax, always with the very important caveat that she was doing whatever it was for her husband. She helped Anthea out in her shop sometimes, usually when she felt a bit low and needed someone to stand next to who would make her feel instantly better. Apart from that, how could she work? How could she keep regular toiling hours when her husband's time back with her might only be a few hours? What employer would ever give her time off at the drop of a hat so she could quickly run home to massage her husband's feet, crutch and ego, and not necessarily in that order, and then not mind in the least when she then had to call in sick for the rest of the week because of a sudden inability to be able to walk properly. No, she owed it to her husband to be there whenever, and indeed wherever, he needed her. When he phoned her late at night and asked her what she was wearing, she had a duty to be modelling the full lingerie ensemble. Well, that is to say, she had a duty to have nothing else on her mind to distract her while she attempted to at least convince her husband that was what she was wearing. After all, he couldn't see her. And the tracksuit was so much more comfortable. And a lot less drafty. Sandra did miss her husband immensely while he was away, though, and she would always count down the days until his return. He would simultaneously be doing the same, allowing for whichever time difference happened to be relevant at the time. She'd asked him to always give her a week's advance notice of any return. That allowed her to concentrate on him and to realise just how much she'd missed him. It enabled her to look forward to seeing him again and to feel the thrill of organising the various pampering, polishing and pruning sessions that would ensure she looked her best for him. New underwear would always have to be purchased too, something very similar to the sort of stuff she'd been pretending to wear anyway during those late night hot and heavy phone conversations. The house would be cleaned to within an inch of its life and every surface would be completely cleared of clutter. She'd learned the hard way that her husband had a tendency to want to continue his travels even at home. For the purposes of keeping their mutual flame alive, this very much left every room in their cottage open for business. Items left on tables or other solid areas of about waist height were likely to end up strewn all over the floor, having been slowly edged to their doom by the momentum of her naked backside. Like some kind of pornographic penny falls. The excitement would peak just before he arrived home, at around about the time she heard his taxi pulling up outside. 
Yes, things usually did seem to go downhill from there, actually, when she looked back on it. The period of time between that sound and her husband almost metaphorically putting his key in her door tended to signal the start of the decline. What if the house wasn't good enough? What if she put on too much weight? What if he didn't like the new curtains? Things would pick up again significantly when she saw him, though. He had a fabulous way of hugging her that made her ribs crack. She liked that. It made her feel helpless and delicate. He used to spin her around in his arms a few times, too, but he hadn't done that for a while now. Perhaps the double hernia he'd so narrowly avoided that last time still preyed in his mind. But he would always kiss her passionately, groping at her breasts as he did so. Then there'd be a break in the action because it was always around about now that he'd remember the taxi driver stood beside him on the doorstep with the luggage and waiting patiently for his tip. Or maybe his turn. That was good for her self-esteem. Whatever. The point was, it was always the same. The luggage. That would be where things would start to go seriously wrong. He wasn't planning on leaving all that rubbish there, was he? Couldn't he see that the place was immaculate? Why were his shoes dumped in the corner like that? He wasn't going to leave his trousers and underpants in a pile by the door now, was he? Why couldn't he get them dressed tidily? Shouldn't she put a load of washing on? Did he want a beer? Did he want a sandwich? Had he seen the curtains? Did he like her hair? Why was he looking at her like that? Oh yes, right, of course. Within an hour, the house would be trashed. The bedroom would always cop it first. There was a certain amount of comfort to be derived from that, she supposed. At least he still found her attractive. And at least his first action upon returning home wasn't to just put his feet up in front of Sky Sports News and fall asleep. The bathroom always looked like it had been on the receiving end of a direct hit from a doodlebug. Given all the countries her husband had visited, could it really be possible that not one of them had a law against leaving the toilet seat up? It was only over at times like these that she'd felt at all envious of Anthea. Before the divorce, anyway. Humphrey may well have been under her sister's feet most of the time, but at least he'd been house-trained. The way he'd always looked at Anthea, too, she envied that. His was not the gaze of a man who couldn't wait for his wife to take her clothes off. It was more the adoring eyes of someone who was thanking his lucky stars that she still had all of them on. Sandra's husband never looked at her like that. He couldn't do, really, working as he was within such severe time constraints. But there was no denying it. She always ended up feeling cheap. She wanted to make dinner for him, to bring him his newspaper, to listen as he regaled her with tales from his travels. She wanted him to tell her how beautiful she was. Not in a way that suggested he thought her words were some sort of skeleton key that might get her to open her legs. She wanted him to say it because he meant it. And damn it, because it was true. By the time she'd whizzed through a few wash cycles and got her ironing board out, he would be preparing to leave again, and Sandra would find herself counting the minutes until he did, because then she could start missing him all over again. She could start trying to remember all the things she loved about him, while at the same time trying to forget about that incredibly long list of immensely irritating things she really didn't like about him at all, but which he always seemed to be able to squeeze into every single return visit. She would be ready to sell her own soul just to be able to get out of whatever remained of that wretched lingerie too. Which was why she always ironed her tracksuit first. He would always call her from the departure lounge to thank her for a wonderful time and to tell her that he loved her. Oh, and that she was beautiful. Oh yeah, 
and that he had noticed her new hair and the new curtains, and that he would have told her so over a nice, quiet little meal at the local bistro, but that he'd simply not wanted to waste a single moment of their time together engaged in pointless conversation, not when she was so sexy. And from beyond passport control, that always sounded romantic. It always sounded sincere. Its somewhat more chauvinistic overtones completely overlooked in the thrill of the moment. Romance, that was the thing. That was something Anthea didn't have. Chapter 4 Humphrey sank into his chair. The pleasure of seeing the back of Barney was almost worth the hassle of having him there bugging him in the first place. He sighed. He was just going to have to be patient, that was all. He could be patient. He could be very patient. He'd once patiently played 77 games of Minesweeper on the computer, waiting for Anthea to give up waiting for him and go to bed on her own. And he could easily have played another 77 as well. Not that he wouldn't have happily engaged in any number of different carnal activities with the woman. Once he'd steeled his nerves with at least a bottle and a half of vodka, that is. It was simply that any appointment of that nature seemed to be always, always doomed to failure. Anthea's expectations far exceeded his rather pathetic abilities. Although there was some comfort to be derived from the certainty that even an exchange visitor from Krypton would have felt nervous about a potential romantic encounter with Anthea. Even if he escaped relatively unscathed during the performance, there would still be hostile reviews of some description to be faced. Which sort of sounded like Barney's singing career, really. Perhaps he and Barney were a lot more similar than he'd ever fully appreciated. Except there was still some hope for Barney. They really were just going to have to be patient. At the end of the day, Barney was still only learning the ropes of his chosen profession. Learning the ropes, wasn't that some old nautical term? He quickly ran through the lyrics of In the Navy, but was left with few answers. He resolved to play himself the accompanying video later on that evening, purely for research purposes. He might even allow himself a look at Macho Man too while he was about it. Something about that idea unsettled him. Maybe it was the thought that his old village people biker costume might be too big for him these days. The moustache might be good to go though, surely. After all, a good moustache fits any face. And why was he thinking of Anthea? He was thinking of something else too, what was that? Whatever it was, it was the image of that moustachioed character that was doing it. Where was he now? 1985. Christmas. Yes. Christmas Day, 1985. Just him and his father. Oh yes, he could see him there now, checking his watch every five minutes and drinking whiskey by the festive barrel. Fifteen years old that whiskey was, the same age Humphrey had been at the time. And there were no prizes for guessing which one of them the old bastard was happier spending his Christmas with. Oh look, he was wearing his new belt. A strange, almost bizarre gift for Humphrey to have got him, although in some ways it had been perfect. He'd certainly not been expecting it, nor had Humphrey been expecting any of the things he'd received that day either. There'd been no Cindy doll, that was the biggest trauma. No, of course there hadn't. Never mind the fact he might well have wanted her for quite legitimate purposes, 
like irritating the hell out of his father, for instance. Nobody had even thought to ask him why she'd appeared on his Christmas wish list. Nope, Santa Claus had quite obviously just leaked the list in its entirety to his father, who had stepped in and apparently taken it upon himself to write Humphrey a new one, requesting rugby boots, an action man, and a signed photograph of Jill Gascoigne. Maggie Forbes had subsequently disappeared into the depths of his father's briefcase. That was her life over then, over and done with. Poor woman, there'd be no more gentle touches for her. Meanwhile, the rugby boots had been filled with compost before Noel Edmonds had even pulled his first televised cracker that day and were set to be planted, in the not-too-distant future, with the most effeminate flowers Humphrey could come up with. Something pink, definitely. And not carnations, either. They were far too respectable. The Action Man. That had to be the reason for Humphrey's trip back to this particular memory. It hadn't even been the real one, just some half-price version. But it had been a really macho one, with a number one haircut and a moustache. Really macho. Like his father, in fact, with his calfskin gloves and his sheepskin slippers. But unlike his father, Mr Mann had clearly been overcompensating in his choice of profession. That was quite obvious to a trained observer. Mr Mann had no doubt been forced against his will to follow a career as near as damn it 180 degrees away from the one he'd been born to, which was a ballet dancer, more than likely or possibly a flower arranger. Perhaps he could even advise Humphrey when the time came to plant out his new rugby boots. Anyway, it was the fault of a greedy multinational toy empire, or its Romford market equivalent, that he had instead enlisted in the Marine Corps. He had to have a secret. That uniform, that haircut, that moustache, there had to be something. Nobody could possibly be that masculine in real life although that was clearly the reason he'd been parachuted into Humphrey's stocking in the first place. Or at least, into Humphrey's pair of stockings. Ten denier. Well, he did have the legs for them, and he'd taken the calculated risk that his father would be highly unlikely to want to break in his new high-quality leather gift quite that soon. Maybe Mr Man himself wore tights, perhaps. That was his secret. Maybe he sobbed until his heart broke during Bambi. Maybe he cried every time he had to chow down, overwhelmed by the sacrifice made on his behalf by any sort of reconstituted former living creature. Whatever it was, there was no way that man, or indeed any other, could possibly be 100% masculine. Whatever being a man actually meant. And what about his father? What was his secret? Being a greedy, arrogant and vain son of a bitch probably didn't betray too much in the way of a feminine side. Most women of Humphrey's experience were far too intelligent to feel the need to get involved with any of that sort of rubbish. Michael Lovewell would most definitely not have cried during Bambi. He would never have had the time to watch something like that in the first place, and even if he had, he would have empathised far more with the huntsman who pulled the trigger. In fact, he'd have probably helped him sell off the venison steaks down at the golf club. What about silk underwear? Was that feminine? It would have been if Humphrey had been wearing it. He'd have made sure of that. He'd have nipped straight down to the Marks and Spencer lingerie department and let rip. Although probably not literally, as he hadn't yet embraced obesity to quite that extent. He'd definitely embraced his feminine side, though. What was the difference between a pair of silk boxes and a pair of silk panties anyway? After all, neither one of them could offer all that much by way of testicular support. Humphrey could no more answer that question now than he'd been able to in 1985. 
All he did know was that the presence of silk panties about his person had pretty much guaranteed his father's attention. Especially that first time where they had, at least in part, been responsible for the man's immediate physical return from some fundamentally unimportant far-flung field of legal flimflam, which had then brought Humphrey a jewel lashing from both tongue and belt. But that hadn't really been the point. His father had been there with him. That was all that mattered. Chapter 5 Buy to Let had come into Michael Lovewell QC's life at just the right time. The law could no longer hold his complete attention, and he had no private life to speak of, apart from the golf club. He saw Humphrey infrequently, but did not look forward to their encounters. The fact that he could no longer deal with his son by simply bending him over a windowsill and walloping him had somewhat taken the shine off their entire relationship. He was utterly terrified of Anthea, too. He had taken on and beaten some of the most formidable opponents the bar had ever unleashed, but she scared the living daylights out of him. Internet banking had provided some small amount of pleasure. There was a lot to be said for sitting in the comfort of your own rather large and expensive home and watching every penny you have ever made pop up on a computer screen in front of you. He wanted more, though, certainly as far as his money was concerned. Sure, he received the occasional love letter from it in the guise of a bank statement or two, but if that paltry amount of interest was supposed to represent its affection for him, then he was definitely going to have to find himself a much more deserving bit on the side. The answer was buy to let. Here was a place you could invest your money, find a selection of less fortunate folk to pay you for the privilege, and above all, make yourself look extraordinarily important while discussing it over a large single walk down at the clubhouse. Other people managed the rent collection, and other people handled the nitty-gritty of doing the absolute minimum they could get away with, in return for the maximum profit they could engineer. It was left to Michael to simply drive around the county and visit the bricks, mortar and 1970s olive green bathroom suites that were having a short-term fling with his money. He could cruise down whole streets these days and see nothing but his money. He would have been the first to admit they were not exactly the sort of streets where he would have ever have dared to stop his car, just in case anyone stole a few bits off it. Nor would he ever have countenance going to visit the fruits of his labours after dark, even with that distinctive tinge of red light that seemed to envelop one or two of his properties during the evenings to guide him. Truth be told, there was probably not one tenant in any of those houses that he would have felt comfortable having a few drinks with, and that was something he was not altogether proud of, or they would have been more than happy to defend any of them in a court of law. That was where the glamour was, all right, defending folk, and then blowing the socks off everyone with a display of legal genius and ultimate intellectual supremacy. Sort the facts of the case. That was where the real excitement was. Besides which, he was a nice chap. Despite what most people seem to think. He'd branched into commercial properties too, although that had been down to a devastatingly charitable plan which had popped into his mind one morning several years ago now. He'd been pondering the success of Humphrey's life coaching business at the time, completely against all the odds, or so it seemed. Michael had no idea where the boy might have got the notion that honesty was anything like the best policy, but he knew for certain it had never come from him. 
The truth had its place, but in general terms it was very doubtful it belonged in the day-to-day -day running of one's professional life. That was typical Humphrey, of course, making a success of himself by doing something utterly ridiculous, purely despite his father. Copernicus would have had an impossible job arguing with Michael that the world did not in fact revolve around him. Indeed, most people would have had an impossible job arguing with Michael about anything. Humphrey never bothered. No, he'd gained ground on him by employing much more subtle means. But the wretched boy was not his problem anymore, thank goodness. In which case, why was he even remotely interested in what that overweight toe rag was up to? Actually, the weight wasn't even worth commenting on anymore. Since his marriage to that woman, for want of a better word, he miraculously slimmed down to something no longer detectable to the United States Geological Survey any time he had to run with a bus. That woman, for want of a better word, had unquestionably had a considerable effect on Humphrey, and that really hadn't seemed right. How could she have succeeded where Michael himself had failed? No, not failed. Definitely not failed, because he didn't fail. Not ever. And while Anthea might have managed to get the better of Humphrey with her somewhat dubious womanly wiles, Michael was a vastly different prospect. No, he wasn't beaten. He was merely biding his time, that was all. At the end of the day, Humphrey had still achieved nothing of any great note, apart from conning the great unwashed on a depressingly regular basis. He hadn't even had the decency to operate under an alias. The name of Lavoie was destined to become a complete and utter laughingstock. It could all have been so different, if only that little bastard had bothered to listen to him. As it stood at the time, Michael was starting to have to field questions as to whether he was Humphrey's father. That in itself was nothing new, although that particular question had historically been accompanied by some sort of sniggering and then a position report or sighting, usually in the women's department of Littlewoods or some similarly insalubrious location. These days the remark was usually followed by some modern day tale of Humphrey's even more eccentric behaviour. Some publicity stunt he'd organised for a client, for instance, or some elaborate lie, dramatically exaggerating the positive effect he'd apparently managed to have on someone's life. Was he Humphrey's father? What did that matter? Humphrey was his son. That was the important thing. A subtle difference, perhaps, but the intent was clear. Michael was the one to be admired, not Humphrey. Humphrey was of almost no significance in the grand scheme of things. Humphrey needed a lesson in humility. It had occurred to Michael that Humphrey must have had to rent somehow from someone, somewhere. It had been a very small step from having that thought to actually finding out who that person might be. His team of financial experts then got cracking on a way for Michael himself to buy the premises without actually having his name appearing anywhere on the paperwork or, more crucially, on the tenancy agreement. Very quickly after that, he'd found himself as Humphrey's landlord. Oh, and Anthea's too just for good measure. She ran an independent charity shop anyway, so that was practically a tax write-off. An anonymous one, naturally, certainly as far as she was concerned. He really was a nice chap, you see. He allowed Anthea to function from her side of the high street completely rent-free, which was extremely generous of him, and he could at least fill part of Humphrey's seemingly unenviable lifestyle. He didn't charge him much, not really. No, because it wasn't the income that gave him the power, nor the addition of the address to his portfolio. It was the knowledge. It was the fact that he had it, and his son did not.
It was the sort of power that was only truly effective through the complete ignorance of those that were being controlled. That was the way of the world, and Michael could completely understand why. It was the ultimate position of strength. Humphrey was within his power again, and he didn't even know it. Chapter 6 Humphrey's yuletide reminiscences had rather swiftly given way to 40 dream-laden winks. Cat Weasel had joined the lineup of the village people, his smock having been adjusted in various important places in order to make his body shape all the more tantalising. Jennifer Aniston looked on, obviously hugely impressed by the genius of the man who'd come up with such an idea. But that man couldn't quite reach her, because his path was repeatedly blocked by Monty Price. Or was that Anthea? Whoever the lighting director for this production was, he'd done such a poor job of things that it was extraordinarily difficult to tell. It was the height of the figure that had decided it in the end. A good six foot four. It had to be Monty. Anthea was only over six four in her heels and she never wore those. But she was there, though, with a shotgun. Hell's bells, he wasn't going to have to make love to her, surely. Not here, not in front of Cat Weasel. Christ, all of Humphrey's childhood innocence could evaporate in the space of ten seconds, or perhaps a little longer, since Monty would probably distract him ever so slightly from his rather horrifying primary task. What on earth would Jennifer think of him? all over and done with before he could even make the vaguest promise that he would be there for her, and she would never find herself there for him too, not within the space of ten seconds. It was almost a blessed relief when Anthea took aim at him and fired. Humphrey woke with a start. There, facing him across his desk, was his father. His hand rested firmly in the centre of that desk, right where he must have brought down the full weight of his failed expectations in which case it was surprising the thing hadn't been cleaved in two. The old git could have woken him up gently or decided to come back later, but no. Although, given the imminent encounter he'd been facing thanks to Mr Sandman's evil sense of humour, Humphrey perhaps ought not to have been quite so ungrateful. In fact, he ought to have jumped up and kissed him, if either one of them could ever have stomached such a thing. No, his father had decided to pay him a visit, had he? This day really did have disaster written all over it. If only he'd received warning of his plans, he could have worn something a little bit special, just for Michael. The man was obsessed with what he wore. Even now, years later, he seemed to be able to vividly recall whole outfits that Humphrey had donned as a boy. The colour, the material, even the number of sequins. More likely, though, he'd have simply exited the premises as fast as Einstein's calculations would have allowed. And where would he have gone? Anthea's shop, that's where. Where else? Great stuff. Another good reason to go around and see her. However much she might claim to hate Humphrey, she hated Michael far, far more. That was what a winner the man was. Anthea had been an invaluable weapon over the years in the constant fight against that man and his ego. Can I help you, sir? Don't call me sir. They stared at one another for some moments. In fact, an enterprising entrepreneur could have made a fortune bagging and selling the contempt in that room. How are you, boy? Fine, thanks. Sir? Humphrey watched his father's face carefully. 
It betrayed no outward irritation at that word, but he was definitely clenching his teeth. Good. Michael glanced loftily around the room. What is it you actually do here, boy? I still don't know. Humphrey smiled cheerfully back at him. Not much, but since you're standing here talking to me at half past three on a Tuesday afternoon, whatever it is I do must be more important than whatever it is that you do. Michael felt one of his gold fillings shift. Damn boy! But wait though, he still had the upper hand in any negotiations. This damn office belonged to him. That gormless looking fool over there had no idea about that, did he? I wanted to make sure everything was all right with you, you know, since the divorce. Michael watched his son's face carefully. The smile had surely sagged a little and he definitely gulped. Yes, everything's fine, thanks. It was nice to see you as always. Anyway, can't stop. With an elaborate flourish, Humphrey got to his feet and then strode towards the door. What he'd do when he got there, he hadn't quite decided. He'd look a bit daft if he didn't actually leave the building, though. Thank goodness he remembered to bring his wallet with him. Not that there was any money in it, of course. Not any more. He might just go and look in the window of the travel agent, actually. After all, if he was indeed serious about calling her an Anthea, it was highly unlikely she was ever going to let him leave without buying something. Certainly not in one piece, in which case he was going to need to check on the latest moth to sterling exchange rate. All paper clips, he had plenty of those too, except they were all on his desk, and he couldn't very well go back and get them, not with that pompous git still stood there. Bastard. That was fine though, he was the one leaving the scene. Humphrey was in control of the situation now, not him. He won. I expect you're going off begging now, are you? Yes, well, at least you're appropriately dressed for it. Not so much a throwaway remark as one weighted down with a heavy rock. Humphrey's victory hadn't lasted long then. Oh, we couldn't leave now. The cheeky bugger. It was his bloody fault Humphrey was broke. Well, Anthea's bloody fault. Well, OK, then it was his own bloody fault. Yeah, OK, it was his own sodding fault. Fine, no problem. He could wreck his own life quite satisfactory without giving that bastard any of the credit. His current situation was merely a means to an end anyway. He had to keep hold of that fact. It was his own fault. At least that was some consolation. It wasn't going to keep any wolves from any doors, but it was some consolation. Mind you, the neighbourhood wolves on the path up to his door had all been moved on already by his ex-wife, and she, along with his father, had simply broken the door down themselves and proceeded to use it to knock him straight into the boy out. I hope there are no hard feelings, boy. His father looked at him. It was a very strange expression. Condescension? Check. Arrogance? Check. But was that sympathy? Impossible, surely. I mean, obviously divorce does not generally fall within my sphere of extensive legal expertise, but I can assure you it was an absolute pleasure to put all that to one side in order to play such an important part in yours. Michael Lovewell QC was the ultimate lawyer machine. He could beat anyone, including his own son. There remained, however, a distinctly bitter taste in his palate with regard to the entire experience. Humphrey had initiated the divorce. The grounds had seemed more than reasonable. It ought to have been an open and shut case. Assets divided fairly, wedding photos torn up, and 12 years of their lives consigned to the dustbin. That was what was supposed to have happened. But Michael had panicked. 
What if they realised, for whatever reason, that they perhaps didn't really want to get divorced after all? He had seen a way of finally getting his son away from Anthea's influence, and nothing at all was going to stop him. So he'd volunteered his legal services, as any good father would. Any good father who was keeping a bunch of ulterior motives under his barrister's wig, that is. The fact that his services had ended up benefiting to a rather large degree the woman he had so desperately wanted to be rid of was something he didn't particularly care to dwell on. The fact that it had been Humphrey's own idea, and that Michael must presumably have been outwitted in some way by him, was an even more painful consideration. It had therefore been something of a hollow victory. All victories counted, of course, but some of them almost cheapened the very word. And the boy's reaction to the whole thing had been nothing short of gobsmacking. He'd just been told that, due in no small part to the brilliant legal arguments of Mr Michael Lovewell QC, he would be losing his house, his lawnmower, his collection of vintage brooches, and most of his immediate future's earnings to this paragon of bloodthirsty womanhood. And what had he done? He'd marched forward and offered his hand. That's what he'd done. With a warm and courteous, well done, sir, thrown in there for a good measure. He always called him that. Never dad. Not even father. Sir, it had been like that since he was 15, when he'd first started being so bloody difficult. It hadn't even been a particularly masculine handshake he'd offered either. In fact, it was so limp-wristed that Michael had initially failed to see the scarlet red fingernails that had accompanied it. Tell me one thing, just one. Is this about the nail varnish? I know, I know, red nails can look really trashy, but even you have to admit, they did match my dress beautifully. Michael felt one of his gold fillings dislodge itself completely. He considered his next move very carefully. Gold was a rare commodity. A replacement filling was going to cost him a fortune. However, even if money had been relevant in the argument, there was no way he could spit that gold out. Humphrey would get too much satisfaction. There really was only one option. He swallowed there. Humphrey would never know how much he just managed to annoy him. Michael won. I reckon I probably looked a bit too glamorous though. That's probably why the divorce cost me so much. What do you think, sir? The divorce cost you so much because your ex-wife had the benefit of my advice and my immense legal experience. Yes, well, I'm sure you're right. So why didn't you let me advise you? Humphrey thought for a moment. Then he smiled gently. I think we did it the right way. What do you do for your clients? I win. At all costs. Michael thought wistfully of the lump of gold that was just beginning its unenviable journey towards the sewers. Did he really, really have to win? Yes. At all costs. Humphrey smiled again. And what do you do to your opponents? I crush them. I annihilate them. You see? We did it the right way. Michael looked on, dumbfounded. This boy was serious. You're an idiot. Do you know that? Oh, yes. I mean, you've told me so. So many times. How did he do that? Ostensibly a phrase that acknowledged Michael's obvious superiority, yet delivered in such a manner that the contempt literally dripped from it. Humphrey smiled at him yet again. 
only much more broadly this time. How could a smile provoke such feelings? The burning desire to track down the name and number of a reliable hitman, for example. Don't push me, boy, that's all. Michael was losing this situation, that was obvious. He clasped his hands firmly behind his back, just in case they were tempted to reach for the buckle of his belt. It would no doubt have been completely misconstrued an action like that. He'd have only been hitching up his trousers, though. Honestly, nothing more. No, of course not, sir, because it's always me that pushes you, isn't it? Nothing to do with you at all. Nearly. Nearly. But a damn good thing he got those hands well and truly clasped. The belt would have worked in the old days. There'd been no arguments then, not for long anyway. But this was utterly absurd. Were the pair of them really destined to live out this same feeble power struggle until the world's end? They were hardly Frazier and Ally. More like Frazier and Niles. He wondered in horror what any of his golfing chums might have made of the situation. Remotely speaking, he imagined how people who had never had to put up with Humphrey themselves might have viewed the pair of them. No doubt they'd say they were both arrogant, both pig-headed, both pathetic, both even probably deserve one another. That would have been the closing statement from any impartial observer before he escaped from the scene altogether and left them to it. Left them to fight over who was the least pathetic, or perhaps it would be the most pathetic who would take all the prizes. Was it really worth winning under those circumstances? The answer was an unequivocal but slightly uncomfortable affirmative. And he saw a way to win the current battle too, if he could only get himself out of that office. He didn't even say goodbye, but merely turned on his heels and made for the door, leaving a pile of perpetually unfinished business in his wake. He was calm, controlled. He'd been challenged, antagonised even, and yet he'd managed to walk away. He won. And now he was going to the pub, via the dentist. That damn boy. Humphrey strode majestically to his desk, opened his bottom drawer, and retrieved from its depths a large packet of chocolate biscuits. There was no doubt about it. His own hollow victories were insatiable in appetite. Chapter 7 The woman's clothes had started relatively innocuously. Humphrey's adolescence had been in full swing at the time and his bedroom walls had been covered with dozens and dozens of Bananarama posters just to give him something suitable to focus on during those intense one-handed moments. A Banana Man poster would have done, though, really, at the time. Sex. Suddenly, overnight, that seemed to be all he ever thought of. His whole appreciation of life had changed. He could no longer enjoy a beautiful sunset or a fine piece of music without feeling an overwhelming need to go and discuss the matter urgently under the lifeless multiple gazes of Sarah, Karen and Siobhan. They were quite reproachful gazes, actually, some of them. Very similar, in fact, to the one that was usually to be found on the face of his ex-wife after most of their own bedroom encounters some years later. She didn't appreciate his urgency any such matters any more than Banana Rama had, it seemed. The somewhat disproportionate time Humphrey had been forced to spend confined to his bedroom, coping with his life almost literally single-handed, 
had he recently been playing right into Michael's own hands. If he was not around, or at least visible, he could be put completely out of the great man's mind. He was able to come in from whichever legally challenging or alcohol-laden location it was that had been lucky enough to have him, to relax, go to bed, and then do the same thing all over again the next day. Everything was on his own terms. Whether Humphrey's leisure activities would have been considered normal amongst his peers was a matter of mystery, since his father had never found the time to have that all-important chat with him, and the boys at school had all been as clueless as he was. What Humphrey had managed to establish was that, like him, quite a number of the young men in his class could scarcely have had time in their lives for anything else. These were boys he was very, very careful about accepting any rulers, sweets or digital calculators from. Was he normal, though? Only one man in the world would be able to reassure him on that subject, one way or the other. It would just be a question of getting his attention. Humphrey identified the occasion of his 15th birthday as the perfect opportunity to try to attract a good bit of that attention. Friday the 20th of September 1985. The day before this most momentous event, he'd lingered a while after school in one of Brentwood's newsagents, leafing through the pop magazines for pictures of Sarah, Siobhan and Karen. Or, failing that, for pictures of anyone who looked even vaguely feminine. He was just debating to himself whether a pull-out poster of Boy George may or may not qualify on that score when he was struck by a retrospectively ridiculous idea. It was half past four, so not all that early. Was it possible that Michael was home? True enough, he hadn't seen him all week, thanks to the man's legal preoccupation with some crook who had actually managed to get his attention, albeit very much the hard way. Alleged crook, innocent until proven guilty which he presumably never would be. Not with Michael Lovewell QC to fight his corner. But then maybe the case had ended. Maybe, just maybe, Michael had negotiated some time away from it for the express purpose of celebrating his son's birthday with him. Of course, his birthday wasn't actually until tomorrow, but tomorrow was a school day, so he wouldn't see him then, and by tomorrow night the birthday would be practically over. Could he be at home now? planning some kind of two-day extravaganza? That was an exhilarating thought. Crazy, perhaps, but exhilarating. And if it was possible, then the celebrations could not kick off in earnest until the arrival of the star attraction. Hurriedly, he paid for his magazines. Boy George had indeed made it through to the next round of auditions and then began the long walk home. The house was set on something of a hill, and the approach to its grounds and the view through the trees already told Humphrey his father's car was not there long before he'd reached the wrought iron gates. That didn't necessarily mean anything. He could still have been on his way. Perhaps he was stuck in traffic or something. The charwoman's car was there, though. Mrs Milton. He didn't much care for her. For one thing, her presence in the house was a constant reminder that his mother had left. She wasn't much of a cleaner, either, although the same might equally have been said about his mother. She'd always told him that a certain amount of dust in the house was vital for the immune system. She must have been making stuff like that up as she went along. Humphrey rather suspected that Mrs Milton was his father's paid informant. In other words, a grass, to use Sweeney vernacular. It was quite touching, really, in a way. The great man himself was never there, but at least he was vaguely interested in his son's day-to-day -day existence. He could have simply spent more time with him and 
found out all he wanted to know that way, but obviously he was far too busy and important for that. So that old bag of McCluck from the small house to do it for him. The only thing was, informants could be very useful double agents too, especially if they weren't even aware of it. Mrs Milton had reported a number of Humphrey's crimes to Michael during the six months she'd worked there. Rudeness, bullying, underage boozing, the sort of behaviour that might have been construed as a plea for her father's attention, were anybody of a particular mind to be interested. Yet her betrayal of Humphrey had achieved almost nothing of any use to him. Michael's morality compass had clearly spent too long next to a lump of magnetised iron or something. Rudeness had been encouraged, albeit in moderation. Apparently it showed character or some such rubbish. Meanwhile, bullying had been positively mentored, with devious inside tips being dispatched remotely from the heart of his father's chambers to a wholly disbelieving and thoroughly disinterested Humphrey. Empty bottles of vodka discovered by accident in the 14-year-old's wardrobe had brought nothing more by way of attention than a brief telephone remark from Michael about finding a more masculine tipple, which was a waste of breath in any case because Humphrey hadn't even touched the stuff. He'd found the bottles outside in the street one day and brought them into the house in order to test his father's reaction. And what a thorough disappointment it had been! He pushed the front door open and was greeted by Mrs Milton herself. Cigarette in gob, rubbish bag in hand. He was right, she really wasn't a very good cleaner. Certainly not with that filthy look on her face with anything to go by. He decided to fight fire with something suitably volatile and smiled back at her charmingly. When's he going to be home? He should have added a please, really. It would have been more polite. But then again, things you might have find on the sole of your shoe don't tend to be known for their manners, and that was clearly what she was equating him to, judging by that rather disgusted look that her face had evidently decided to upgrade to. Your father's staying in town tonight, working on that case of his. He asked me to leave you that. She nodded towards a large envelope sitting ominously on the hallway table. Money? She nodded again, depositing cigarette ash liberally all over the carpet. What about my birthday? Mrs Milton looked at him with complete and utter disdain. She was actually giving him a valuable little sneak peek into what it was going to be like to be married, if only he'd realised it at the time. You are an ungrateful little boy, Humphrey. Your father works exceptionally hard for you. He was nearly right. He worked exceptionally hard for himself. Oh well, it was probably for the best that the soul had managed to find himself an excuse for not giving him the bumps or buying him an 18 birthday cake. All of that sounded like far too much fun for a boring old git like his father anyway. Whatever happens, he's going to call you tomorrow evening sometime between 7 and 8 to wish you a happy birthday. The vindictive old sod. Between 7 and 8? If he were to hang around waiting for that whole hour, then he wouldn't be able to do anything else. His birthday really would be a complete load of rubbish. Mrs Milton peered at him menacingly. I'm sure you'll be here to talk to him, won't you? I will be. She wasn't going to give him the bumps instead, was she? Well, that settled it. If she was going to be there to answer the damn phone anyway, then there was absolutely no reason whatsoever why he should have to be there as well. His father could go and whistle himself into a running jump, well and bleeding truly. That had been his attitude for the rest of that afternoon, and well into early evening. A closer inspection of the envelope had uncovered two crisp £20 notes. No other note, though. Nothing to mention his birthday, for instance. His father hadn't even bothered to ask her to write Humphrey's name on the front of it. 
Money, as always, was just supposed to make everything okay. Well, not this time. No way. Having consumed the absolutely revolting processed cheese sandwich that had been left for his supper by Mrs Milton, Humphrey sat for some time studying the two banknotes. William Shakespeare mocked him from one of them, while no lesser personage than the monarch herself waved a metaphorical two fingers at him from the other. Money never sold anything, he was convinced of that. But maybe, just maybe, it could change the nature of the problem. What was it that he wanted more than anything in the world? Apart from an extra two inches where it mattered, that is. Hey, hang on a minute. Hell, if anyone influential was going to intercept that particular wish, he might as well make it spectacular. Apart from an extra six inches in those aforementioned places. He reflected on his calculations for a moment. Even with that, he'd only just about be achieving parity with the majority of the male population. If he were to believe the majority of the articles in his recently procured copy of Cosmopolitan, that was. No. He wanted his father's attention. Ugh, how pathetic. This was really starting to get boring and it was definitely becoming predictable. And speaking of predictable, Michael really expected him to be sat there for an hour the following evening. He really did. Bizarre. It was supposed to be Humphrey's birthday, for heaven's sake. Yet he was actually expected to spend his whole day waiting desperately for a 15-second inclusion into the great man's day. And what was even more pathetic than that, and even more bizarre, was that Humphrey would in all likelihood be sat there between seven and eight, doing just as he'd been commanded. Pitiful. He picked up the banknotes and studied them. He could buy an awful lot with 40 quid. That wasn't quite the point, though. There would be nothing for him to open in the morning, and he would have to wait until after school now to spend it in any case. Even then, how much freedom did he really have to spend it? His father probably wouldn't be on the telephone long enough to interrogate him directly about his purchases, but Mrs Milton would no doubt do the honours on his behalf. There was nothing whatsoever to look forward to. He stared at the notes again, looking for some kind of inspiration. His father probably expected him to go and open a boring old bank account with him or something. If so, he'd be horribly disappointed if Humphrey went and blew most of it on a three-year subscription to Smash Hits. He thought about that. Perhaps if Michael was disappointed in him, he might actually pay him a bit more attention. He would surely find it difficult to pay him any less. Pay? Yeah, 40 quid. That was all he was worth. Shakespeare, eh? More specifically, the balcony scene from Romeo and Juliet. Both parts played by boys, too, originally. So in one hand, he had a boy pretend to be a girl for an audience, and in the other, he was looking at an old queen. That was the nucleus of an idea right there. His school day passed slowly. There was big and rather exciting news with regard to his maths test, though. It was absolutely mind-boggling, but he'd managed to achieve an absolutely eye-watering 91%. That was impressive, to say the least, given how much he loathed and detested that subject. Not being able to borrow rulers and digital calculators from his fellow male students without first donning a pair of surgical gloves probably didn't help. Still, he always got to sit next to Louise. She'd even promised him a birthday kiss, although he'd mercifully got out of that predicament by convincing her that buying him a dozen blackjacks was really much more appropriate. 91%. Wow! That was the sort of thing that might just retain his father's attentions. 
once they'd first been attracted by other, far less conventional means. In the general scheme of things, Michael associated himself with winners, only winners. Whether it was getting his car balloted by the best firm in the country, or whether it was buying a pair of trousers from an establishment that had the inside leg measurements of the most powerful men in the land, the standard was expected to be high. He played golf with winners, even going so far as to charitably share the spoils of victory with them on a regular basis in order to perpetuate that myth. Even as the most sedentary of armchair football supporters, he'd made absolutely sure of always being on the winning side, which had ultimately caused him to have more regenerations than Doctor Who. The rise of Manchester United as a fairly consistent sporting superpower during the past 25 years had proved extremely timely and had helped to eliminate from his mind the guilty memory of the season he'd been forced to support Blackburn Rovers. Not that he would ever have been seen dead actually being herded through the home turnstile at anything like as plebeian as a football match, even amongst a group of fellow high-achieving prawn sandwiches. It was more a topic of conversation, really, especially given the rather wide cross-section of people he regularly had dealings with. There was very little point in trying to win the trust of Phil the Fingers or any similarly qualified client by engaging him in a discussion on the works of William Shakespeare. Unless, that is, you wanted a first folio liberated from somewhere with no questions asked. By rights, of course, he ought to have supported Leighton Orient, a decent, although not entirely successful little club. His true boyhood club, back in the days of the two up, two down, with the ice inside the windows and the toilet in the garden and the gnawing, grinding poverty. Had he stayed true to his roots, then that would most certainly have been his club. But then had he stayed true to his roots, he would never have achieved anything. He had his own father to thank for that, if thank could ever really have been described as being the right word. The somewhat unpalatable truth was, Michael had descended from a long line of manual labourers. He hated having to even confront that fact. He could barely even get the words out of his central vocabulary. Not through the shame of what he was, no, 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 it was the terror of what he might have been had he not managed to escape his destiny and his past and his father. He'd been a dustman, his father, honest and hard-working, just about scraping by. A man of limited conversation but with a very definite presence. A presence that had become more and more overwhelming and oppressive as his son's childhood had progressed. Because once it had become obvious that Michael possessed the personal attributes that might just be able to propel him out of such an existence and into the realms of the centrally heated white collars, his father had decided to provide whatever motivation his own son might have needed in the only way he could, which amounted to nothing more and nothing less than cold, calculating violence. Michael had been utterly petrified of him, which had at least saved him from the worst of his father's potential. Within those four miserable walls, Tom Lovewell's word was the law. There were no appeals, there were no arguments. Not if you knew what was good for you. Nevertheless, Mr Lovewell had been proud, very proud indeed, in fact, of the greedy, work-obsessed, ruthless professional he'd helped to create. He would always find time to mention his son's innumerable successes down at the Working Men's Club, although Michael could never bring himself to mention him at all. That was a world he had forgotten. It had no bearing on his later life. No bearing whatsoever. 
The excitement and anticipation was almost too much. An after-school shopping trip into town had disposed of that 40 quid quite nicely. He'd made some pretty impressive purchases, actually, even if he did say so himself. The 30 pence he'd wasted on a birthday card to himself was a bit pathetic, though, especially as he was planning on filling it in on behalf of his mother, wherever the hell she was. He wouldn't show Michael that. It was too ridiculous. But the rest of the items from his shopping spree had been very much chosen with his father in mind. He'd be impressed with his good taste and keen eye for a bargain. He really would. It was merely a question of getting his attention in the first place. To that end, Humphrey had initially decided to stash most of his new stuff within the deepest recesses of his wardrobe. She always snooped in there, Mrs Milton. That's how she'd found all the vodka bottles. Mind you, it had taken her a good while. Weeks, in fact. He didn't have that sort of time to play with in this case. Hence his decision to simply leave the bags out there in the hallway. He was sure he could rely on her because she wouldn't be able to miss them out there. He sincerely hoped she'd be impressed by his efforts because he was going to have to rely upon her further to give his father an accurate report of precisely what he'd been up to. Now then, which of his gifts would win the battle for her attention? The false fingernails? Well, they had to be a pretty good bet. That was if the boob tube hadn't already distracted her completely. Oh yes, golden it was, with delightful little bows and sequins. Matched with his new purple velvet jodhpurs, it was going to simply wow everyone he met. He added his boy George pull-out to the shopping bags too, just for good measure. Then he grabbed himself a celebratory bag of salt and shake and settled down in front of the television. Between seven and eight, that's what he was waiting for. Sometime between five and six, he heard Mrs Milton dialing a number on the telephone. It would have to be a call to his father. Even she wouldn't have the audacity to ring her auntie in Inverness, not with Humphrey in the house. So she must have found the bags. What was more, she'd appreciated his efforts to such an extent that she'd decided to move their collective appointment forward by a whole two hours. This was simply marvellous. He was going to get his father's attention and he was going to maintain it too, even if he did have to compete with that mighty triumvirate of the law, the golf club and the wine bar. He waited for his opportunity to speak with the great man himself, but alas, the wait was in vain. There was a brief discussion about something, and then the receiver was quietly replaced. Mrs Milton returned to her reconnaissance duties, and he was left once more to his own devices and the national news. He wasn't normally all that interested in boring, irrelevant current affairs, but the news that evening was a whole other animal. The lead story was dull enough, but what followed immediately after it most definitely wasn't. Something about a rather prolific career criminal's trial, which had been brought to a rather abrupt and completely unexpected halt that day, following the man's sudden decision to change his plea to guilty. Up until then, it looked as though he was going to get off, apparently, even in the face of overwhelming circumstantial evidence. That was a testament to the brilliance of his defence barrister. There was a rather good court artist's impression of him. It captured everything, the arrogance, the superciliousness, even his name. Michael Lovewell, QC. Oh dear, Humphrey felt ever so slightly ill. It must have been only 45 minutes or so later that he saw his father's car turn into their driveway. That was some going by anyone's standards. To get from his chambers in London, where he must have been when he spoke to Mrs Milton, all the way back to Brentwood in that time. In the rush hour, 
Now, was that likely to be a good thing? That was the question. The way the engine stopped, the door opened, the driver exited and the door slammed shut again, seemingly all in the one movement, was rather unsettling and did seem to suggest that no, it was not likely to be a good thing. But Humphrey could do nothing now but wait. He could be patient. He could be very patient. There was nothing else for it, not now. Unless he could somehow find a way of retrieving those carrier bags. That boy George picture at the very least. He could always claim Mrs Milton had been on drugs or something and had imagined it. Except that, oh dear, oh dear, she'd met his father at the door. Yes, of course she had. He heard the rattle of the plastic bags and then two lowered voices. He heard the front door slam and through the window he saw Mrs Milton hurrying to her car. That was a coincidence. She seemed to have two brand new £20 notes as well. Fancy that. Humphrey heard the door to his father's study slam shut too. Mrs Milton drove away. After precisely eight minutes, he heard the study door opening again. He felt a sudden urge to visit the toilet. Too bad he'd have to go out there into the hallway to get to it. For some reason, the thought of meeting his father at that moment filled him with a rather significant level of dread. His father was in the driving seat now, not him. The leap into the unknown was exhilarating, if not slightly terrifying at the same time. He'd forced Michael into having to make the next move. Humphrey had that power. Boy, this was it then. His one shot at the big time. He stayed right where he was just long enough to be absolutely sure that his father would notice the somewhat rebellious nature of the action before semi-confidently making his way to the study. The door was open and he could see Michael inside, standing by the window, looking out at the garden beyond and at that beautiful apple tree. Humphrey wasn't sure whether he was supposed to knock or not. After some deliberation, he decided against it and instead walked as casually as he could into the centre of the room. His father didn't seem to even notice. It was a depressing room, stuffy, with windows that never seemed to open. It was filled to the brim with boring-looking books and dull-looking documents and wall-to-wall -wall legal paraphernalia. But there was something interesting in there today, at least, because Humphrey could see his birthday bag sitting rather too prominently in the middle of his father's desk. A tumbler of whiskey lurked beside them. Presumably that was at least the second libation so far to the memory of Michael's lost legal pride. It took several seconds for the great man to realise Humphrey was there. That wasn't a particularly encouraging start to things. Even when he did turn round and look in his son's general direction, it was up for debate whether he'd actually seen him. He didn't speak to him either, merely moving away from the window and over to the desk. Was he going to wish him a happy birthday? Apparently not. Not unless silently downing ten units of alcohol in one gulp qualified. Perhaps it was some sort of mysterious toast. Humphrey considered whether now was a good time to draw attention to himself, perhaps by thanking his father for that money. No, bad idea. Almost as bad an idea as buying those purple velvet jodhpurs and then leaving them in a bag for his father to find like that in the first place. Given the events of that afternoon in court number one, he might just keep quiet for now, until he could come up with a reasonable explanation for the jodhpurs at any rate. Louise! That was perfect. 
There wasn't one item in that bag that she wouldn't have worn, however briefly, and quite clearly the picture of boy George was hers too. She obviously admired the man's makeup. That was the story then. She'd back Humphrey up more than happily, although she might just want a little something in return for such a favour, which might be dangerous. In fact, it might be infinitely more dangerous in the long term than being alone in that room with Michael now. I lost a case today, boy. This evening a man sits in prison cell because of me. His father pointed towards a copy of the Evening Standard, which had been left open on the armchair at the relevant page. Humphrey glanced at it. He'd never been one to judge folk on their appearances, but the man in that photograph looked like a crook. Either that or a politician. Or both. It probably didn't help that it was a police mugshot they used in the headline, not something professionally done by Lord Litchfield. Anyone would look like a criminal in a police mugshot. It stood to reason. Beneath the photo was a list of the chap's former crimes and even a transcript of the confession he'd asked his barrister to read to the court. He'd been as guilty as sin, quite obviously. For heaven's sake, the cell he was destined for that evening had been preserved by the prison governor just the way the bloke had left it when he'd been given parole for the last job he'd been caught fair and square for. Humphrey was beginning to get the distinct impression, though, that neither the man nor his crimes were even relevant. Michael Lovewell did not lose. Not ever. He poured himself another drink. There'd been more than a good chance of a not guilty. Had he not destroyed the reputations of each and every witness that the Crown had brought before him? Had he not poured sufficient scorn and cold water over the prosecution's entire pathetic concoction? This would have been the absolute crowning pinnacle of his legal career thus far. Instead of which, his dozy client had lost faith in him. He'd had one eye on a reduced sentence for being honest instead. What the hell was the world coming to? He wasn't even bloody guilty, Michael was sure of that. Guilty of lots of things, yes, but not of that particular crime. The jury would have seen that. They didn't even know about his past, so why had he panicked? Was it a lack of faith in his lawyer, or in the system itself? Either way, it was a sad indictment of things. And on a personal level, if he'd managed to get his client off this one, what would it have meant? Fame, distinction, the respect of his peers, not to mention another naught on the end of all of his prices. Perhaps more important even than that, he could have looked himself in the mirror and been proud of a job well done. Now what did he have? He had that boy staring at him, that's what. His father was finally looking at him. Right, it was time to make his move. I came topping my maths test today, Dad. Michael frowned very slightly. Nothing more. You got a hundred percent. Who did he think he was talking to then? Bloody Pythagoras? No, Dad, ninety-one percent. Humphrey was quietly confident. His first attempt at getting his father's attention had presumably been forgotten about. Thank Christ. This one couldn't possibly fail, though. Not on his birthday. His father clutched his whiskey glass tightly to his chest. He spoke slowly. So, you got 91%. That's right. Top of the class I was, Dad. He'd never been able to say those words before. Apart from in pottery. His pots really were something else. 
but he'd never considered that to be the sort of thing that would ever really have impressed a man like Michael. A man who wasn't even looking at him at all now. Even when he spoke, he looked like he was addressing his own desk. A class full of half-wits, was this? Wait a minute. This was a very nasty turn of events. Why wasn't he impressed? 91% in a maths test should have been impressive. On the face of it, it was nothing short of a miraculous achievement. Given the fact that the last maths test he'd taken, he'd managed to achieve the less than princely sum of 12%, and even that had included two whole percent because he'd managed to spell both halves of his name right. His teacher, Mr Evans, had at least tried to make the score seem a little more respectable, bless him. Heavens, the day Humphrey had been forced to confess to that meagre 12%, he really had anticipated the worst reaction from his father. A lecture, certainly. Possibly something even worse. Yet on that occasion, Michael had just sniffed and then got back to reading his newspaper. What was occurring now then? What had happened in the last week and a half to change the great man's attitude? Had the poles shifted in the meantime or something? He had a feeling something might just happen this time. Possibly something bad. Potentially something very, very bad indeed. Nevertheless, there was no doubt in his mind that he did have something approximating Michael's attention. Something approximating his sustained attention too. Ordinarily, he'd have shoved ten quid in Humphrey's direction by now in order to get rid of him. This extensive father and son time was something else entirely. Michael looked towards Humphrey. He didn't see him at all this time, but just happened to look in his direction. Yes, nothing less than 100% would do from now on. Nothing. He was just going to have to work harder, that was all. He could still achieve great things. He'd come from nothing. He had already done well. He would just need to ensure that he did better, but much better from now on. He poured himself yet another drink. That was something his own father used to do before he belted him. He would have been disappointed in him tonight, no question. He was a failure. Although at least he was getting himself drunk on the finest single malt and not disgusting bottles of milk stout. 91%. Was that really supposed to be impressive? 9% short of perfection? In other words, a complete and utter waste of everyone's time. His own father would have belted him hard for a lack of effort like that. No excuses could have prevailed. He really had been a heartless devil. Michael himself, on the other hand, was clearly too soft. Humphrey was never going to achieve success in his own life if he continued to labour under the misapprehension that scraping together a score of 91% was anything whatsoever to be proud of. He got to his feet, still clutching that glass. He turned away from Humphrey once more. 91%. You're a failure, boy. That really was a beautiful apple tree. Over 15 years old it was. 15. Oh God, he could feel his son's eyes staring at him. It would be that pathetic little puppy dog face, the one he always wanted to chuck a bucket of water over. How come I wasn't a failure when I got 12%? You didn't even bat an eyelid when I got 12%. Somebody had spoken there. Who was that? Was that Humphrey? What was he doing there? Ah, yes. 
the fingernails, the boob tube, those jodhpurs. Michael should have been drowning his sorrows amongst friends or at least acquaintances down at the clubhouse. They'd have understood him, understood what he was going through. Instead of which he was here with an imbecile who thought 91% was something special. An imbecile he now turned slowly around to face. But you never for one moment thought I'd be impressed by that 12%, did you? That's the difference. You knew that wasn't good enough. Whereas you did think I would be impressed by today's failures. That last word was said with such venom. He hadn't even meant his son's mathematical efforts. He'd very much meant his own self-perceived legal ones. Humphrey stood before him, clearly confused. Indeed, Michael was pretty confused at that moment too. He drained his glass completely of its contents and then, somewhat shakily, set it down. He seemed to have reached one of those awful crossroads in life. Whichever path he chose, he would ultimately be drink driving his way along it now. He had to face a few facts. Humphrey was never going to achieve great things. At least, not in any field worth mentioning. He was as thick as a brick for a start. Not that such a thing would necessarily have prevented him from carving out a successful path in quite a variety of high-profile careers. Anything from finance to politics could have been open to him, if only it had been anything like that simple. The problems ran deeper, much deeper. Humphrey was a good person, a nice person. His own person, quite obviously. He was a sensitive soul, and mere glance at the items in those shopping bags was more than enough proof of that. However, there was a fine line between sensitive and wet. He'd promised the boy's mother that he would take care of him. Hell, he'd forbidden the bitch from taking him herself, such was his determination to do right by the boy. He'd certainly done nothing tangible up to now. He was a failure in that department as well, then. He was a failure, and Humphrey was so pathetic that his undoubted destiny was to be walked on and abused his entire life. That reflected badly on Michael, however you looked at it. Unless, unless, Michael himself could do something to change things, here and now. What would his own father have done to him, faced with 91 paltry percent and a pair of purple jodhpurs? Somewhere, probably drowning in a tumultuous sea of single malt, a lone voice of reason told him to think again, to look closely at his own failings, perhaps, before launching on a course of action for which there could be no return journey. He could still just depart from the scene, leaving Humphrey to his mediocrity and to his women's wear and to his picture of that quite remarkable creature with the makeup. But then what? No, significant action was needed. He grabbed his empty glass, walked an impressively straight line back across the room and poured himself yet another drink albeit one much smaller in comparison to its predecessors. He didn't hear that voice again. Nine short of perfection. Was he talking to him then? About time if he was. At least he finally let go of that bloody whiskey glass. He might even be gearing up for a bit of a paternal birthday embrace. Oh no, wait a minute. Of course, his own father had always favoured the buckle end for this sort of purpose, but Michael was certainly not going to be that cruel. That dustman garb had incorporated a ferociously wide and heavy bit of leather. 
and the man himself had possessed the upper body strength to really wield it effectively too, no doubt as a result of dragging all those dustbins around. God, he'd come such a long way. He drew his own belt from around his waist and doubled it over in his hands. Then he doubled it over again. And then he hesitated. If he could just get himself out of the house, out of the entire situation. This whole thing had been a ridiculous attention-seeking vehicle for Humphrey. Anyone could see that. Not the 91% perhaps, but the jobpers. Purple wasn't even a very nice colour, and he'd fallen for it. That settled it then. He wouldn't hit him. No, damn it, he was better than that. Better than that bastard father of his. He would call himself a taxi, and then he'd leave. He made a small mental correction to that. He would call himself a taxi, take all of Humphrey's new purchases, and then he'd leave. And then, when he was sufficiently far away from the house, just in case those purple jobbers had any sort of a homing instinct, he would fling the entire lot into the nearest dustbin. And then he'd win. If he could just get himself out of that room. But the whiskey weighed him down and he found he couldn't move and he couldn't back down, not now. There was only one way out of the situation now. It would be all right though. His was a genuine made-to-measure Savile Row suit. This belt was decorative, not functional. And the occasional swing of a golf club now and then had not exactly left him with too many muscles to speak of. Humphrey probably wouldn't even feel it. It was too bad it was his birthday, though. Very poor form, that. He couldn't even teach his son a lesson properly, it seemed. He really was a failure. Michael nodded towards the windowsill. Let's get this over with then, boy. Humphrey smiled at him, although not in disbelief. This was ridiculous. The most ridiculous part being the idea that he would be in any rush whatsoever to get this over with. Not a chance. He was centre stage at last. The star attraction, a vital component of his father's future plans. This was beyond unusual. It was a first in their recent time together, since his mother had buggered off anyway. What a birthday! Michael looked at him with growing impatience. This boy really was an idiot. Humphrey, if you don't bend over this moment, I am going up to your bedroom. I know where you keep your collection of original London cast recordings. Oh, why could it not have been pornography? I shall smash your cats to smithereens and that will only be for starters. Yes, that had got him. He'd learn even if it did have to be the hard way. Failure was not an option. Losing was not an option. Michael Lovewell never lost, not ever. The day's courtroom events were a mistake, someone else's mistake, not his. Your grandfather used to belt me all the time. It was the making of me. Humphrey thought about that. He had to concede his father was probably right there. It had probably been the making of him into the hard-hearted, selfish git that he was. He'd never realised his love of musical theatre had made such an irritating kind of an impact either. That was information to be filed away for future attention-seeking purposes, and no mistake. He only wished he'd done it sooner. He started towards the window, still rather uncertain as to what was going to happen if and when he ever reached it. 
The man with all the answers also seemed to have a belt in his hand with Humphrey's name on it. But maybe that was too obvious. It's my birthday. I know that. So what's with the belt? There was a moment's hesitation before his father cleared his throat and gave him an answer. I think you know. Humphrey considered the words carefully before apparently accepting the statement and advancing towards the window. He'd wanted his father's attention and it did look as though he was just about to get it. Ideally, he'd have preferred a high five and a chat about the birds and the bees, but beggars couldn't really be choosers. And besides, he couldn't very well argue with the consequences of his actions. He had always hated maths. He'd have done anything to get a reasonable score in a maths test, anything whatsoever short of actually sitting down and studying for it, naturally. So he'd sat next to Louise for the test and simply copied her work. She'd been more than honoured to do that extra bit of revision just to make him look good. She'd have done anything to get him to notice her. It wasn't a course of action he was particularly proud of and his conscience certainly wasn't clear, especially as he'd then managed to get a higher mark in the test than she had. Mr Evans had marked her down by 2% on account of the fact that she had forgotten to put her name on the paper. Yes, there had been some guilt there. He was a lying, cheating scoundrel. There was a tremendous amount of guilt there. His father obviously knew it. No doubt he thoroughly deserved to fill that belt. And Michael was making some sort of effort to spend time with him. On his birthday, too. He gripped the windowsill with both hands and bent over until his forehead touched the cold window pane. Then he waited. And waited. And waited. And why was nothing happening? Get out, Humphrey. Just get out. He didn't dare look round. The voice sounded strange, almost emotional. Very, very strange. But it really didn't matter because he wasn't going anywhere. Not now. Michael wouldn't be getting rid of him. Not that easily. At least he managed to sound calm just then. Telling Humphrey to leave had required an immense strength, far greater than any that would have been shown by his belting him. But why was the confounded boy not going anywhere? Michael spoke again, but this time there was a degree of anger in his words. Hardly surprising, given the huge internal struggle for which they were the spokesmen. Humphrey, I'm warning you to get out now, or I will thrash you. And he really didn't think he'd be able to stop. Humphrey stood up and turned to face him. His father was trying to get rid of him. He wanted him out of his sights and out of his thoughts, just the same as always, well, there was no way that was going to happen. Did you like the clothes? What? The clothes and the nails. Very me, don't you think? Michael's jaw fell open so widely and so quickly that Humphrey was convinced he must have sustained some rather significant muscle damage. Still, he recovered his composure well. With a painful sounding clicking noise and the merest hint of a wince, he clamped his mouth tightly shut. Through gritted teeth he spoke. You will return every single item in those bags. Tomorrow. No, I don't think so. Are you defying me? Decision time. Was he?
yes, it looks like I am. Michael felt himself wobble ever so slightly. His own father would have literally skinned him alive for such defiance. There really was only one answer now. Humphrey just made it easy. Are you going to get on with it then or what? Why did the damn boy sound so bloody cheerful? You can count to nine. For starters. Humphrey resumed his position by the window. He didn't much like the sound of the nine for starters clause in their imminent arrangement. It surely gave his father too much control of the situation. After all, it was his birthday. The old swine was trying to muscle in on his day. So, you're going to hit me nine times with that belt on my birthday. Well, we may as well make it around ten then, sir. You're a bastard. Yes, he must be the winner now with a line like that. It was brave, if also just a little foolish. But then that was him all over. He gripped the windowsill once more and waited. This time he heard the sound of the belt in action as his father tested it on the face of the pathetic fool who had started all of this. That distrustful little toe rag in the newspaper who had doubted his professional abilities. That's all right, Humphrey. You can have that one for free. He hesitated, trying to remember the protocol for this sort of occasion. There was something wrong with the layout of the scene. He knew that much. It was the trousers. That's what it was. Humphrey's trousers. They'd have to come down for a start. Pardon? I told you to take your trousers down. I prefer not to if it's all the same to you. Oh, for God's sake, Humphrey, be a man. What exactly did that phrase mean? No crying? That wouldn't be too much of a problem. No leaping up from the windowsill and clutching his arse cheeks? Well, again, that sounded fairly easy. But taking down his trousers? Well, taking down his trousers at that moment would definitely not make him look like a man. Chiefly because he had chosen to actually wear one of his birthday purchases underneath those trousers. Not for attention, either. For how could he possibly have known the extraordinary turn events would take that would lead to him being asked to drop his trousers in front of his father on his birthday? He wasn't really all that sure why he'd worn them, actually, although they were incredibly comfortable. A little bit of luxury in a cold world. Humphrey's world suddenly got even colder as his father grew tired of waiting for him to obey his instructions and took matters, not to mention the boy's trousers, into his own hands. Oh dear. It was maddening that he couldn't turn round at that moment and get a look at the expression on Michael's face. There'd been a gasp there, an audible gasp. He'd shocked him. Had he shocked him? There was a definite chill in the air now. Yes, there was, actually. Especially in the bum department. Oh, that's because his father had decided to drag his new silk panties down as well. He'd better not have ripped them in the process, that was all. Humphrey wanted to wear them again. Start counting, boy. He hadn't gone out then, after all. He definitely said he was going to, as he was putting his belt back on. But Humphrey could see the familiar red glow of his cigarette apparently hovering in mid-air in the darkness beneath the apple tree. This was truly momentous. What a day! A birthday not to be forgotten. Was it really 
possible that his father might actually be thinking about him right now? And if he was, what was he thinking? Was he sorry? Could Humphrey actually have found a way of getting his attention whenever and however he wanted? The pain from the earlier encounter throbbed right through him, drawing attention to the most obvious flaw in that little plan. He might have control over the whenever, but the however looked far from ideal. He lay face down on his bed, giving the various images of Sarah, Karen and Siobhan a doubtless rather unwelcome view of his thoroughly beaten backside. Why hadn't he cried earlier on? The experience had hurt, there was no question about that, but tears would have been a sign of weakness. Or at least Michael would have certainly thought so. In which case he'd have been disgusted with him and would probably have chucked him out. Was that why the attack had been so brutal? Somehow it seemed unlikely. Michael had been in such a frenzy of self-indulgence that Humphrey began to question whether his father had even realised he'd been in that room with him at all. Wasn't that just marvellous? Even alone with him, being relentlessly belted by him, Humphrey still couldn't muscle his way into the great man's thoughts. Worse, he had the feeling he'd simply been a convenient excuse, and he didn't much care for that. At least he'd managed to retrieve those silk panties from the scene of their collective humiliation. He fully intended putting those on again. Maybe not just yet, though, not while his lower regions were throbbing like that. He might need to invest in a salve of some description, especially if this was going to be a regular recurrence. Except that wouldn't alleviate all of the throbbing. With some degree of difficulty, he rolled over onto his side, apologised to Chiffon Fahi in advance, and reached one hand down towards his groin. This wasn't going to take long. Not long at all. Michael took one last drag on his cigarette and then extinguished it angrily against the apple tree. He shouldn't have hit him. He should not have hit him. He was better than that. He could argue his way out of anything, could he not? Words were supposed to be his weapons, not temper. Violence was a thing he'd left far behind him. Had no place in his life and yet that boy had deliberately provoked him. No judge in the world could possibly have found Michael to be guilty of any wrongdoing. With the possible exception of his own conscience, that was. Should he go and talk to him? Even now, all he had to do was go upstairs and talk to the boy. To apologise to him. No, he couldn't do that. How could he do that? He would just seem weak. There would be nothing to gain from that. Humphrey was probably crying his eyes out anyway, listening to Elaine Page droning on about her memories. Michael couldn't have handled any of that. Actually, it was probably more likely to be something from Lacazo Foll, based on the evidence of his son's recent forays into the world of female fashions. There was no need for apologies. Humphrey would understand that. Besides, this had been a one-off occurrence. He'd been provoked and he'd lost his temper, that was all. It wasn't really an acceptable excuse, but at least it would not ever happen again. Oh, the provocation would undoubtedly occur again, but he would just have to make sure he reacted in a far more dignified manner next time. He could do that.